Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, March 23rd, 843-661-0937 is our number. Hey, remember a couple of... Good morning, Reb. Hey, good morning. Remember a couple of weeks ago. Let me move this mic out of the way. Give me two seconds. Okay. All right. Uh, it kind of gets in the line yeah, of sight line there. of sight there. We need to be um, able to communicate with one another what? visually and verbally. Well, and I guess since you've mentioned that, let's set the stage because we're in a little different configuration okay. since, since Cato left. I'm in the... Did anybody ask you to set the stage or is it like Joe Scarborough, I'm leaving the Republican Party? Well, I just... Remember think, when Scarborough said, I'm leaving the Republican Party? I do remember. And nobody asked him. <laughs> and nobody asked him right. if we were really... Well, well, I'll say this. I, I feel like uh, I. Hey, I just got a text. Can can you get Rev to set the stage of how of how things? <laughs> you're are set funny up now that um no. now that Chummy's gone. Listen, listen. It's because you said <laughs> I'm moving the mic. That's different. That's out of uh, that's out of the norm. So I figured because you said I'm moving the mic, what does that mean to somebody who's listening to the radio? So I thought I would set the stage and just maybe. Fill in the blanks as to why you are moving the mic. So we're in different studios. Set the stage, Rev. So I'm in the producer studio through the glass, and you're in the talk studio. Or what, what do we call it? Talk studio? I think we do. Okay. So the, the way the line of sight is, one of the guest mics, when it's left in a certain position, will be right in our direct line of sight. So you are moving that. that that's all I was going to say. Okay. Good I, I wasn't, you know, thinking, oh, people are is- wondering about the setting the stage before of the studio we, configuration before we set off of the world of politics is there any complaint we have about gamecock athletics i mean now is the proper time to oh register any complaint we have about gamecock athletics I, they I, hired fred g sanford's son uh, lamont <laughs> is now the coach at south carolina the hey, basketball coach i read south you know carolina. He's, he's got a good record right i mean he's uh he's been involved in some teams that have been successful he was an assistant coach at ohio state no, you, or Wisconsin, if I'm not mistaken. Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin's had a pretty good run. Uh, took the head job at UT Chattanooga. Um, they had their struggles in the first couple of years he was there. Um, but if since, turn it around. It's all a crapshoot, right? I mean, it is. I mean, really and truly, when you hire a coach, it's all a crapshoot. Yeah. I mean, unless you hire Spurrier or Urban Meyer or, or Nick Saban, you know, somebody who's a proven commodity, it's pretty much a roll of the dice. Um Urban Meyer's last try at coaching in the pros did not work. It. We could be a Clemson baseball fan today oh. after getting boat raced against um, Coastal Carolina yesterday. Citadel. <laughs> Citadel. No, yeah. Coastal. Oh, Clem- Clemson. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did the Gamecocks oh, I- lose to Citadel? They did. Oh, okay. So the Gamecocks <laughs> That's lose where I to thought Citadel. you were going. No, the Gamecocks lose to Citadel. I think it Clemson- was a walk-off. It wasn't a boat race. Clemson got boat raced by Coastal. I did see that. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. So the Gamecocks and Tigers both lost baseball games. Um to some of these smaller schools in our illustrious state. So congratulations uh, to the Citadel for beating South Carolina. Congratulations to Coastal for beating uh, the Clemson Tigers. Uh, but it's all about football, right, Red? We don't care about baseball. Yeah. Or we don't care about basketball. It's all about football. Yeah, I've moved on um, from baseball and basketball. <laughs> well, I think the Gamecocks are now officially um, 500. If I'm not mistaken, their record is 10 and 10. And the next three games will be against, um, I think – the number one or two team in the country, Vanderbilt. So, um, yeah, things get better uh, on the horizon. <laughs> so, so there, we did rant about Gamecocks. But we threw a Tiger um, yeah. barb in there as well. Um, 
Someone asked me yesterday at the uh, at the gym as I was finishing my workout um, to explain as best I could why gas is so high in California. I mean, it, we, we understand the Ukrainian-Russian war has disrupted the supply, and because of that, there's a, a decline in production or at least a, 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 a level, a degree of confusion in where we're getting oil from and some of the embargoing or, or suspending or sanctioning of some of these economies. Um, the city of Los Angeles became yesterday the first United States city in American history to reach a $6 plus average price for a gallon of gasoline. Mm. Um, now, when you say $6, let's say that gas in South Carolina is $4. Gas in, uh, and I think South Carolina's got, what, a 26 cent gas tax? Am I right? I mean, it was to be implemented in stages, two cent a year for the next whatever years. I think the final number is going to be 26 if it's not there yet. I think it's there yet. I mean, I think we're already to the 26 number. So the state gas tax in South Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, is 26 cent a gallon, um, and gas is about $4 a gallon. I should have been able to tell that the gas taxes had been you know, stepped up all the way since the roads are all fixed now. Well, I mean, you're being hip, you're being um, sarcastic. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, but anyway, yesterday in California, in the city of Los Angeles, gas exceeded um, an average price of $6 a gallon. So here's the question. If in South Carolina it's $4 a gallon, but in California it's $6 a gallon, surely they don't have a $2 a gallon gas tax in California. They do not. They have a $0.51 cent a gallon gas tax. But they have this um, emissions carbon. It's basically carbon tax. I mean, they, they, they have these emission standards that force the oil companies to refine a, a better blend. In other words, if you're a bourbon drinker, you got Jim Beam and Jack Daniels, and then you've got Jefferson's Reserve. One's $5 a bottle. The other is $100 a bottle. One is, we believe, a much better blend. Well, the gas that is burned in California has to exceed the standards of the state of South Carolina. That gets expensive, and it goes down to, to, to it's a really a carbon tax and an emission standard of which they have to abide by. But it's a fair question, and a lot of people are wondering, so California has a $2 a gallon gas tax? No, they have a 51 cent a gallon gas tax, but they have these these requirements of the oil companies and the refineries in particular that, I mean, it's a cap and trade program. I mean, that's what it is. Uh, here we go. It's a premium tax on emissions. That's a better way to explain it. It's a cap and trade program, but it's a premium tax that the government in California assesses on uh, whether this is a the right blend of gasoline, the right quality of gasoline or not. And the only analogy I can use is someone who enjoys a bourbon occasionally, not a lot, you Baptist, but occasionally enjoy a good bourbon. Um, there's the, the El Cheapo bourbon that the soldiers drank in the Civil War, and then there's the good bourbon that the, um, the generals drank after the Civil War. Um, Jefferson's Reserve would be, in my world, Rev, a premium bourbon. Mm. Um, there's some much more premium than that. I mean, there's some bourbon out there, you know, $3,000 a bottle, $4,000 a bottle. Yeah, Pappy Van Winkle and some of these other. I mean, there are a couple of other bourbons out there even more exclusive than that. Um, I've just never uh, participated. <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in, uh, Jefferson's no Ocean is top of the line as far as I'm concerned, and it's about 100 bucks. A bottle, you can get the old, um, what we call the rot gut in the country that gives you the headache if you smell it, much less <laughs> drink it. Um, so, so 
the, the cap and trade program, which basically assesses a premium on emissions, and I'm talking about premium, not not as in better, but as a like an insurance premium or a car insurance premium. You know, it's got a kind of a payment that you have to play. Um, so combine the 51 cent a gallon tax in California with the cap and trade program, which assesses a premium on emissions, and you get six dollar a gallon gasoline. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday because we've talked a lot about energy, and I've got some other information here we'll touch on uh, this morning. Uh, I read a lot last night in Forbes magazine. Forbes has an energy reporter. I mean, they have a reporter dedicated to nothing but the energy sector, better understanding the energy sector. And something happened at the Security Exchange Commission Monday that is very relevant here. Uh, but but someone said yesterday, and, and it's kind of a good idea, why don't we just let those that want to save the planet save the planet? And those of us who don't believe we're destroying the planet continue as we always have, you know, driving our trucks, driving our cars, the internal combustion engine being one of the um, one of the luxuries of life that allowed me to get to point A. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday. If you lived in, let's say you lived in Pamplico, and your mom lived in Los Angeles, and your mom passes away Monday morning, and you need to be there Monday afternoon, if not for the refinement of oil into rocket fuel or, or jet fuel in this case, there's no way you get there. I mean, think of that. I mean, th- think of the improvement. I think Tim said yesterday that, you know, you could really argue that oil has saved the world. Much You know, talking about destroying the world, you could argue that oil is, has saved the world. I mean, imagine, once again, we live in a big, big nation, 3,000 miles from one shore to the other, roughly, give or take. So, so you've got somebody on the West Coast. Let's say the kid graduates from the University of South Carolina or Clemson, suck at baseball, and, um, and they move off to Los Angeles, and they're paying $6 a gallon for gasoline. And they get a phone call saying, hey, you need to get to South Carolina now. Your, your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother are deathly ill. If not for oil and the refining of oil, that is impossible. I mean, it's not even on the table. But because we've made such exceptional advancements in the refining of oil into jet fuel, into gas, into diesel, into kerosene, it is now humanly possible for somebody in Los Angeles paying six bucks a gallon for gas to get a call from a family member in Columbia or Clemson, South Carolina, home of the um, the suck baseball teams, <laughs> and make their way here in the same day. I mean, the, I understand connectors and, you know, you may get delayed at the airport and layovers. And, yeah, of course, that's the case. But it's possible that that can happen, and it's impossible. It's virtually impossible. In other words, if we get to 2035 and we have to abide by the Biden doctrine and emit zero, uh, zero carbon uh, what was it? Zero carbon emissions. There you go. Zero carbon emissions. We abide by this this nonsensical, fantastical um, version of energy policy that the Biden administration has um, has put forth. You just don't get there. You just simply don't get there. You get in a Tesla. You drive to Boulder. You charge it. You drive to wherever. You charge it. You drive across the country. You charge it about every three or four hundred miles. And sooner or later, you get to see. Um, your mother who may or may not still be alive, your father who may or may not still be alive. I mean, it, it's, it, it's lunacy. I mean, it really is. When you think about reckless and careless and, and, and just fundamentally dishonest, I mean, it, it is those who promulgate the theory that we can honestly be off of fossil fuels 
And I mean, it's 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 unserious. I mean, we talk a lot on this show about the unserious nature of the American people. Now, now somebody asked me yesterday, well, how did we ever get here? I mean, why, why do some people believe that this is achievable? And I wrote down a sentence on my phone uh, as, as I was conversing or conversating with, with our uh, with the person at the gym. And I said, man, some writer for the Atlantic or New York Times probably went to some green energy seminar in San Francisco or Los Angeles. And out of that came that this this optimism that we can all be, you know, uh, driving electric cars and flying on solar powered planes and you know, barges going from Asia to America be powered by, I don't know, windmills or wind turbines or, you know, maybe the old steam engine. Maybe we find the big wheel in the back and it takes, you know, um, my prop, my widget is on the way from China. When will it be here? I don't know, next year, maybe the year after. I mean, we got this wheel propelling the ship because we can't burn fossil fuel. I mean, it's absurd. It really is. And it comes back to, I mean, th- those that believe in that believe that they know what the temperature of the planet Earth is going to be 50 or 60 or 70 years from now. So when you think to yourself out loud, why would somebody believe that we could get all fossil fuels in a decade? Those are the same people that believe they know what the temperature of the planet Earth, or they trust those who say they know what the temperature of the planet Earth will be 25 or 30 years from now. It's unserious. Here's what I say. Um, Genius has limits. Ignorance does not. I mean, there is a limit to genius. I mean, Einstein was a genius. I would argue Elon Musk is a genius. Thomas Jefferson was a genius. But but their, ingen- their ingeniousness had limits. I mean, it was not limitless. The, the ignorance of these people appeared to know no bounds. It appeared, it, it, it appeared the ignorance of these people appeared to exceed the genius of a, a Musk or an Edison or a Jefferson or an Einstein. And we'd listen to those people. Some of you listen Who listen to those, to those people? people. I mean, about half the country. Mm. I mean, they look at the polling. About half the country you know, listens to those people. The sad thing is, people. I think most reasonable people would be okay and on board with moving toward renewable fuels through a natural process over time. In other words, no, don't force you know, force us to say we're not going to be using fossil fuels at this certain time or whatever and make it difficult for us and make the prices skyrocket and be hostile to the oil producers. But let's go through a reasonable transition where we're not, you know, harming one to get to the other. And most people would be like, okay, that's, you know, when, when the prices equal, you know, become equal and it becomes the same price to go with a renewable option, I think most people would be like, oh, okay. okay. Right? Am I right or wrong? No, I think you're right. I mean, I'm one of those people. But I accept the um, the realities of the marketplace. Let's let the marketplace dictate when and how and where uh, we do this. But here's the reality, Rev, and here's where they, uh, here's the struggle. I personally don't think we can ever power this economy without fossil fuels. I mean, I just don't. I mean, there's nothing out there now that there there aren't enough lithium batteries to power a tractor that needs to plow from one end of a field to the other. There aren't enough lithium batteries to power a barge that leaves um, Beijing with X number of widgets on its way to um, LAX or some of the um, California harbors. I mean, the absurdity of that. It's just, you know, do, do I believe we can replace some oil consumption or some gas consumption or some jet fuel consumption? I would imagine. I mean, innovation, entrepreneurship, I mean, the American way, sure. I mean, let, let's do a better job of that. Let, let's be aggressive in pursuit of that. But we're trying to government ordain or government orchestrate you know, the divestment from one form of energy uh, to another. I mean, the, the SEC, the, not the Southeastern Conference, 
But the Security Exchange Commission took a bizarre vote Monday that we'll talk about in just a second. Is someone on the phone? Uh, yes. Let's go there. Boudreaux in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS. Hey, Boudreaux. Good morning. You know, I wonder if we could, on the other side of our sun, if we found a mirror planet to Earth, similar similar continent structure, maybe not identical, but everything the same, same animals, no humans, and we could colonize it. We'd say, hey, listen, you bunch of uh, leftists, you want, why don't y'all we put you in one of Musk's little, little ships and we'll fly you over there. You get you a planet, and you can run it the way you want to run it. First of all, most of them wouldn't even dare think about it. A few of them might would, but I guarantee you within a year or two, they'd say, you know, we can make things easier because there's probably oil under there, too. You know, we we won't do like they did on Earth, but we'll – and before long, they'd have the exact same stuff going on. We, they, they wouldn't want to live without it. Furthermore, uh, this is from yesterday. Y'all were talking about that gal that uh, – the swimmer. <clears throat> the one, uh, the girl uh, – anyway – the, the person everybody's talking about uh, breaking all them records, somebody put on one of my Facebook pages that she only uh, beat the other person by like 40 seconds. You know how long 40 seconds is in a, <laughs> in a damn swimming race? But I'm wondering, Ken, if if Roger Federer or Djokovic or Nadal or one of those guys, it, hell, it ain't got to be one of them. It could be the top 100 tennis player. It don't matter. We ain't got to know his name. If he'd have done that and started whipping Serena Williams's butt, how they'd have felt. See, nobody knows those those college swimmers. Nobody knows those women. They don't endorse Spectrum. They're not on TV. They're not our icons. They're not our heroes. Nobody knows those young girls who got their dreams squashed because now they can't compete because this jackass is doing it. But if Federer or, or some male tennis star went pro as a as – a, I got air quotes. got them bunny ears over my head. Girl – or, or excuse me, female um, tennis star was whipping Serena Williams. Um, I believe a whole lot of people would see things different. Do you agree? Especially if it was a white man. I mean, if it were a white male, you know, doing that, of course the world would see it differently. Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate that. You know, I want to get to this. Um, and uh, Boudreaux raised an interesting point because I, I, I really was going to piggyback on that. He kind of stole my thunder a little bit there. Um, what if we had two worlds and one world where – uh, one world was there were two genders. There were not uh, the, the, the celebration of transsexuality or transgenderism. Um, nine-year-old children were not allowed to enter to a medical contract to have a sex change. Um, you went to the gas station. You pumped gas in your car. You didn't have to worry about solar panels or, you know, the, I'm not talking about the innovation and entrepreneurship. I'm talking about the forced, you know, the, the involuntary exchange of government. Government historically has forced I mean, it's not a voluntary exchange. When Boudreaux goes to the store or I go to the store, you go to the store, you make a decision as a consumer, that is a voluntary exchange. I mean, the free market, you make a decision to buy this or that or something or something else. You choose whether that's a fair price or not. That is a voluntary exchange. That's a necessary ingredient in a free market or a capitalist country. Um, The involuntary part of this, we're going to force you to buy an electric car. We're going to force you to allow this kid to declare themselves um, non-gendered until they get eight or nine years old. That's the notion. And, and really, Rev, it's the, it's the liberal Democrat believing it's their destiny to, to, to be allowed to tell us how we police conduct and, and behave, conduct ourselves and, and behave. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
You simply have two worlds. One is the unwoke world. One is the woke world. You choose. Do you want to be in the woke world or the unwoke world? You declare your path. You chart your course. You, you blaze your trail. You drive a Tesla to a uh, transgender <laughs> clinic and do whatever they do at transgender. I mean, you see where I'm headed? I mean, yeah. you know, why, why, force, why force people? I mean, America is an experiment in what? Liberties and freedoms, personal responsibility, personal independence. And we celebrate all of these qualities and virtues, kind of. Not so much. The government in modern recent history has tried to compel you to do certain things, um, subsidize you, uh, incentivize you to do certain things that are in alignment with some of this liberal orthodoxy. Um, and punish you if you don't. Well, punish you if you don't. And this we'll get to the SEC here and in just a second. Not only the government. I mean, look at you know social media, big tech. Sure. You know what Twitter's doing to Babylon B because they mentioned that the man is a man and... Uh, well, I mean, if you believe, we'll, we'll save that for a second. We'll, we'll go there in a second. Got a caller. Bob in Florence. Hey, Bob, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Good to talk to you. Hey, Bob. Uh, hey, hey, uh, Ken, I, I've been thinking on this matter, and you know who I blame? I blame Gene Roddenberry. You know who Gene Roddenberry is? Was? Uh, Star Trek. He created, yep. created Star Trek. Mm -hmm. uh, Star Trek aired first aired in the mid-1960s, and in and, and one form or another, it has been a regular uh, 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 show in the lineup of uh, science fiction shows in the United States and the world, for that matter. If, if you watch, I'm a fan of the show, but, but if you watch the show and, and listen to what people are saying in it, it, it it's very eye-opening, and it helps you understand why there is a segment of society that believes this and more importantly believes it can be attainable right now. And, and they, they can't differentiate between science fiction and reality. Uh, it, some of the things that the show pur uh, pur uh, purports is uh, a utopian society, a one world or one galactic order, uh, no money, uh, people have no need for food or, or sustenance because it's all provided for them. Health care is provided for them. They don't burn any fossil fuels. And they have unlimited free energy that's available through this uh, science fiction method of, uh, of uh, matter-antimatter conversion of energy. Okay. I, I guess, you know, that's an altruistic view of society, and, it, and it's all well and good. And I think it's a wonderful goal for people to have. However, you have, to, as you pointed out, Ken, you at some point you've got to got to shake yourself, uh, slap yourself in the face, and say, "Okay, well, we don't have that right now, uh, but let's work that direction. But let's also we've got to use what we've got at hand." Um, you mentioned yesterday uh, you were you were talking about torque that that these some of these. Uh, um, uh, uh, equipment and transportation requires engines with a large amount of torque, and, and and it does require fossil fuels. And currently, that a lot of that true. But you know, Ken, there's a lot of vehicles that require torque that are electric. Mm -hmm. You take your your average cruise ship. <clears throat> cruise ships aren't propelled by uh, diesel engines or or, or or that, but they have diesel engines, but they're there to, to generate electricity. 
the the engines on modern cruise ships are all electric. Locomotives mm-hmm. too, I think. Locomotives too. Uh, locomotives, diesel loc. That's, that's a good one, Dave. Uh, diesel locomotives have been around since the 1940s. Diesel electric is what they were originally called, and they have traction motors. I, I know this because I grew up on a railroad. Uh, my dad was with a railroad for 50 years. They have these large traction motors, and there's, there's no better way to trans, uh, no more efficient motor, and and there's no better way to to transmit instantaneous torque than an electric motor. And that's great, but the, the fact is that we just technologically we don't have energy storage devices it currently that can store enough electricity and be recharged rapidly enough to be used in that manner. They're they're just not feasible for modern society. I say uh, Trump had the right idea. He wanted to buy Greenland. I, I say we buy Greenland. What a wonderful name. We buy Greenland, and all the liberals and left-wingers can go there and run it just like they want to. It's already got the perfect name for them. <laughs> and uh, I say put them there and let, let them show us what they're made of. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. Hey, I just wish they'd hurry up and invent the transporter so they can beam you somewhere. Yeah, you know, and, and look. Speaking well, of Star Trek. But but to, to suggest that you are advocating for fossil fuel means you oppose renewable energy, that, that's an absurdity. I mean, they're not exclusive of one another. I mean, I can be for renewable energy and understand that we'll always have some degree of dependency on fossil fuels. I don't see a, um, a scenario of which we're completely winged off fossil fuels. I just don't. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not an energy expert. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a scientist. I don't understand. I mean, I think, I mean, I've read somewhere how much oil is left and how much coal is left in the world. I mean, it reproduces itself at a slow rate, but it really is. And we say this a lot, um, you know, insulting the liberal. I mean, we do it comically, but we're insulting the liberal when we say about John Lennon's song. And if you look at Lennon's song, imagine there's no heaven it's easy if you try no hell below us, above us only sky. Well, I mean, that, that's, you know, that's, that's visions of sugar plums dancing in everyone's head. Imagine all the people living for today. And then he goes on to say, imagine there are no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope one day you'll join or someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. But here you go. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hungry, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Those are wonderful lyrics. They're inspiring lyrics. They're simply words on a sheet of paper. And when a writer for the Atlantic or New York Times go to a green energy seminar in San Francisco, um, California, and out of that comes inspiration and aspiration and a belief that we can, we can wean ourselves off this dirty, nasty fossil fuel, or they go back and they write about it and they pontificate on it, and they believe in it, it still doesn't accomplish anything. And maybe that's the business guy in me, Reb. I mean, you live where the rubber hits the road. There is a reality you confront every single moment of every single day. Uh, I've said it before. A lot of business guys are famous for saying this. Business, women as well, um, those are words on a sheet of paper. How many times have we said the one thing Barack Obama did was convince half the country that the spoken word, if spoken eloquently enough and consistently enough, could potentially become an accomplishment. I mean, Al Gore and, and John Kerry and Barack Obama and about half the Democrats in America today, they travel around the country ambitious 
of things that they pontificate upon, but there is no foundational underpinning. It's impossible today, and any reasonable people or person knows it's impossible today to power an economy without fossil fuels. 70% of all the energy generated in the world today is generated via oil or gas, excuse me, oil or coal. I mean, just stew on that for a second. I didn't say 7%. We'd miss 7%. I mean, if you took 7% of the energy off the grid, it would be devastating. We would have a, I mean, it'd be a cataclysmic event. But I'm not talking about 7%. I'm talking about 70% of all the energy produced or generated in America today, in the world today, is a derivative of oil or coal. And we believe in 10 years, we're going to replace 70% of all the energy the world consumes? It's a disconnect from reality. It's embarrassing that half the people in our nation believe that. But they do because we are an unbelievably unserious nation of fortunate and blessed people. Let's go to the phone. Here's Carl. Morning, Carl. Hey, what's going on, guys? Hey, Carl. Um, Ken, that that Imagine song was, I always, when I was listening to it, it was just the biggest waste of time song, and I would just be glad when I either get out of the store it was playing in. (laughs) or be able to turn the TV off because everyone that I associated with that song um, would have this long hair and be smoking uh, smoking weed or something or doing some other types of drugs. And so, I mean, I just never could stand anything to do with the Beatles or any of those people. But anyway, um, when you're talking about these electric vehicles or this electricity, electric Electricity being generated, period. Uh, don't underestimate our capacity. This, we're America. Uh, we, can, we can power whatever we want to with whatever fuel or whatever power source we want to. So that's not the problem. Weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels is not the issue with those. Here's the issue as far as I'm concerned. Uh, these electric vehicles, these, these quote-unquote smart vehicles, are more and more becoming what we call, what I call, woke vehicles. Meaning that if you own, you ask people who own Teslas, they really can't do anything with those cars. And sometimes they can't even drive them. Um, they, they beam and tell you, oh, this is the neatest thing. If you fall asleep driving, it'll take over and cruise for you and then pull you over to the side of the road so you don't die. Isn't that a great safety issue? I mean, safety, you know, feature well okay yeah but if you um have a bad social credit rating or if that tesla has a maga sticker on the back of it um then they can shut your car off so you can't go anywhere with it and that's the problem uh you you know you have friends of yours i'm sure i got i I know i got friends i know you got a lot of friends being in the you know coming from the auto body industry, good old boys who could, you know, go to the junkyard and piece together in a few days an actual drivable vehicle. I mean, I know people who could do that. You can't do that with these uh, smart vehicles. You know, then the more computers they put into them, and now you got these entire, you know, electric vehicles like your Teslas, that 
you, you know, people can't even work on. You, you know, some of them you can't even, you know, the owner can't even open the hood. So that's where we're going with this. So, and Dave, they, I mean, I'm not, I'm not jumping on Dave, but Dave gives a sentiment that, that a lot of people give. Oh, well, once it's affordable, then, you know, I'm all for it. That's, that's what I call the baby duck gullibility. Because you know, I always have a picture in my mind when I saw one time of, of this alligator swimming out of a out of a pond, and then four or five baby ducks walking behind him because they've imprinted that that's their mother and it's moving, and so they're just gonna follow, you know, the thing. And that's that. that and, I, and I always say that someone's as gullible as a baby duck when they just fall for something that it sounds good. That does not sound good. The affordability is not a problem. They they are trying to control people, and that's you know that's from top to bottom in big government. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that. We got to take a break. Before we take a break, I just said where the rubber hits the road. What is a what what is a large component of rubber? Petroleum. What is a large part of the road? Petroleum? Asphalt. I mean, asphalt <laughs> is, is oil-based. Rubber is oil-based. So when I say where the rubber hits the road, I'm talking literally and figuratively. Where the oil hits the oil. Yeah, where the oil hits the oil. Um, hang on to that. Back in a minute. Some of these people you don't know the name of have enormous influence over the way that, I don't want to say we live our lives, but business conducts itself. One is SEC Chairman Gary Gensler. I'll get to that in just a second. We've got a few moments here. Let's go to the phone. You're not talking about the Southeastern Conference. I am not talking about the Southeastern Conference. Here is Larry in the PD. Hi, Larry. Good morning. Ken, you were talking about relating it back to business, working with these alternative fuels. And, you know, if you have a boss that comes in and says, hey, man, how long is it going to take us to make 50 widgets? And you say, hey, man, it's going to take 50 days. And he says, all right, look, I need you to shave a little bit off that. We need to do that in 45 days. You go, okay, that's possible. Boss, we'll work on it. But if that guy says, I need you to do it in three days, you're like, come on. Surely you, you you realize that if we could have done it in three days, we would be doing it in three days. You know, we wouldn't take 50 to do it. And he says, well, I don't care. That's what it's going to be. Well, this is what you'll do. For three days, you'll pretend that what that guy wants to do is possible. But then when the deadline comes, y'all will have to sit down and you're going to have to educate this fellow. See, the thing with Biden is he won't have to be there in 10 years. <clears throat> so he's made a ridiculous demand, and, he, and oh, he's so bold. No, he's not. He's got no idea how to do it. And you said, tell us how. Well, I know I've already done it because, back to the spoken word, I've said it, so then it'll be done. Who is he, the king of Siam? But the truth is, we've already got safe, efficient, alternative sources of energy to petrochemicals. <clears throat> it's nuclear, but we don't want to use it. Why? The same people for different reasons, right? Well, it creates this radioactive byproduct. Well, put it back in the ground where you took it from. When you're done with it, bury it back down in the same mine it came out of. When you deplete the mine, that's where everybody's waste goes. But they don't want to do it. And the reason they don't want to do it is because they know that nuclear can be dangerous and they don't trust government employees to deal with it. (laughs) So they don't even trust themselves at the end of it. Otherwise, we would be doing something different. Every time you take a liberal's policy to its logical end, it just falls in on itself. 
and they have to go find some other ridiculous demand to make. It's never going to change. We've got to beat these people. We've got to start telling them that they're wrong instead of just saying, well, let's look at it from another point of view. They have to be beaten. You have to tell them they're wrong. You don't need to win their argument. You need to just tell them, get out of the way. Nobody can build 50 widgets in three days. Who put you in charge? Move over. Well explained. Well, that's well explained. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that, my man. As usual, a spot-on call from Larry. Let's go to the next line before we take our heartbreak top of the hour. Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. I hope y'all are doing great. Hey, Charles. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. Just following up on Carl's call a while ago. You know, you can go to a buy here, pay here car dealer. There's dozens of them in the PD. And buy a car today that they finance in-house, and they'll put a starter interrupt on it so that if you don't make your payments, you won't be able to start it. So it doesn't have to be an electric vehicle, and it doesn't have to be something years in the future. This is the reality today, uh, what he's talking about. So um, electric vehicles, uh, uh, I think uh, maybe one day they'll be a good idea. Right now they're probably not. But the fact that you can turn it on and off with a switch is something that can be done right now with cars that are being sold today right here in Florence County. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. Good to hear from you. We'll take a break. We'll be back on the other side. 843-661-0937 is our number. Got about a minute and a half here. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Hey, it's a great broadcast uh, this morning. I hope they'll let you stay on the air, but uh, I think it's too dangerous you telling people what things are made out of, uh, that how essential petroleum is to our way of life. And these uh, these crazy people want to go back to walking everywhere. Uh, and that's a, you know, a uh, human being, the fa- about the fastest they've run about 16, maybe 17 miles an hour. And uh, that that's not too fast. And I, I, it'd take me forever to get Columbia uh, <laughs> running up the road if if I lived through it. But uh, that, but these people, they want to go back and they think it's all going to be propelled by some kind of magic energy, Star Trek thing. Well, I like Star Trek. I, I enjoy it a great deal. But uh, the uh, that that's that's just fiction, fantasy. And uh, there's no, uh, we don't have an. uh, Mikey, you can hang on. We got to take a break. Hard break. We can't float this one back in just a second. 843-661-0937 is our number. Talking about the benefits of oil. Should we transition to another way of producing energy? Of course. I mean, if the market dictates that there's a better way to do it, uh, more efficient, more effective, more affordable, um, a more friendly way to the planet. I mean, I think, Rev, you and I would agree that we are stewards of the planet, mm-hmm. and it's our responsibility to be. to be caring and and respectful of uh, the planet. But I, I'm not going to buy into somebody telling me that they know what the temperature of the planet Earth will be 100 years from now and how much my burning oil or gas or, or kerosene or diesel um, affect or impact the climate. I mean, that's an absurd angle to take, but it's where a lot of people have landed. And once again... When a reporter for the Atlantic or the New York Times goes to a green energy seminar in San Francisco and they come back inspired to write words on a sheet of paper knowing 
that about a third of the country will believe that because it made its way in the magazine, The Atlantic, or with, man, it made its way onto the pages of the New York Times, it has credibility. That, that there's a reason to be convinced that this could potentially be reality. It could be. I mean, I've gone on the record, and I'll stay on the record. I don't see a scenario, as long as I'm breathing, the oxygen that God provides on this planet that we'll ever wean ourselves completely off fossil fuels. For the life of me, I don't see a scenario of which that is achievable. But I'm not an engineer. I'm not a, um, a, a petroleum scientist. I, I don't know how that world works. I just know that it takes a lot of energy to power this global economy. And 70% today is produced by fossil fuels to believe we can just all of a sudden flip a switch and gradually, I mean, I think Larry gave a good analogy. The, the other analogy I'll give, I read a lot about marathons. That There's a guy from, uh, from Kenya, uh, he's Ethiopian. Uh, trying to think of his name. I can't think, but he's, he's, the, he's the elitist. He's the most elite marathoner there's ever been. Nike sponsored an event that he ran a sub-two-minute marathon. Kashagi, that's his name, Kashagi. I mean, he's almost like the, um, the freak of all freaks when it comes to running marathons. So they're talking about, there's a video out, Reb. They have a, they have a treadmill, kind of like a bouncing, one of these bouncing things that you have at Christmas parties or parade, uh, birthday parties, kids' birthday parties. Mm-hmm. Um, you get on this treadmill and you run at the pace Kashagi runs for two hours. And now he runs 26 miles, 385 yards at this pace. But you get on there. Most people can't run that pace 30 seconds or a minute. But they, they started this scientific study. What is the maximum human um, capacity in other words how fast could what could the what is achievable when it comes to running a marathon and two minutes was perceived to be unachievable well i mean we know now we know because i think he ran it a minute and 58 seconds and 54 uh, a minute 58 one hour 58 minutes and 54 seconds a sub two minute a sub two hour marathon it's humanly possible to do that but nobody can run a marathon in two minutes I mean, nobody can run it. Can somebody run a marathon in an hour and 55 minutes? Maybe. Can they run it in an hour and 54 minutes? Maybe. Can they run it in an hour? No. It's humanly impossible. And just as I say, it's economically and environmentally impossible to charge the, the global economy or provide energy for the global economy without the usage of fossil fuels. I don't see a scenario of which that's achievable. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington held on through the break. Hey, Mike. I, I, you're a practical man, Ken. Uh, you you deal with practical things, and I, I think that's something you have in uh, common maybe with Trump. Is he instead of uh, making a committee or appointing a uh, study group for something, he would go ahead and try and fix it. And I think they despised him for that, and they they considered him very dangerous because instead of having all these committees running all over the place, he was actually fixing things. But you're absolutely right. Uh, we've gotten a lot more efficient at using petroleum over the years. We used to throw away the gasoline. We thought it was a waste product. And uh, we thought the, if, if you had oil on your land seeping into the creek, that was a bad thing because it would make the cattle sick. But now we know that it's absolutely vital. And, yeah, you may uh, eliminate a lot of the oil, but you're going to have to start eliminating people pretty quick. Roads are, they, they complain about potholes now. Try doing it without asphalt. Asphalt's a waste uh, product from uh, 
cracking oil, crude oil down. So uh, they, these people are insane. <laughs> That's all I got to say. About Thank you, it. sir. Appreciate that. What do you think about this? The I mean, the, the International Energy Agency does a monitoring. In other words, they call it a reference forecast. They 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 try to calculate the amount of CO two emissions that are being emitted um, annually from the global economy. The global emissions have expanded by about 6.1 billion tons since 2014. So in eight years, the EIA, the International, excuse me, the IEA, the International Energy Agency says that that global emissions have expanded by about 6.1 million tons. U.S. emissions have declined by about 20%. So we're doing a good job at burning fossil fuels more effectively and efficiently and, and environmentally friendly. What, what, to me, that's the road to travel. I mean, can we, can we invent a, a better scrubber? Can we burn fossil fuels more energy efficient and friendly to the environment? I'll give you this random number because you're talking about global emissions and American emissions. U.S. emissions are in decline. Global emissions are increasing. Let, let me give you a number here. There are 330 million people in America. We have 300 million registered vehicles. So there's about a vehicle for every human being that lives in America. Now, some are fleets and some are, you know, but you got babies. Babies don't have driver's license. Ten-year-olds don't have driver's license. They're still part of the 330 million. But we got 300 million registered vehicles. China's got 1.5 billion and 250 million registered vehicles in China. I mean, kind of stew on that for a second. I mean, do you believe people in China, once they learn to drive and like to drive, they're going to want to drive? Of course they are. And to put our economy at a competitive disadvantage in regards to what the rest of the world is emitting, in, um, it's, it's, a, it's a lunacy plan. It's a plan of lunacy. It's detached from reality. It doesn't make any sense. But, but it, here's what makes it real. You ready? And I know we got to call it, and we'll get there in two seconds. On Monday, the Security Exchange Commission voted three to one to advance a rule requiring companies to disclose climate risk. In other words, companies will have to report greenhouse gas emissions generated directly by their operation as well as from their energy consumption. Companies will also have to report what they are called, uh, they call it scope three emissions uh, from their supply chain, from their customers. Um, In layman's terms, uh, Mike said, I'm a practical man. Practically speaking, they're using financial regulations to block investment in fossil fuel, whether you like it or not. The, the SEC, now I believe personally, and I can't prove this yet, I think BlackRock's behind it. I think BlackRock has financed a lot of these green energy um, organizations, some of these entities and enterprise. I think the government has gone to BlackRock and said, hey, will you finance Solyndra Part 2? Will you finance uh, some of the Tesla? Will you finance some of the lithium research? Will you finance some of these other things? Um, and that's why I told you the man, uh, the gentleman named Gary Gensler. I mean, he's the chairman of the SEC, not the Southeastern Conference, but the Security Exchange Commission. He's an old hand at BlackRock. I mean, here we go with the revolving door, the friendliness, the, 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 um, the camaraderie between Wall Street and Washington. So on Monday, the Security Exchange Commission voted three to one to advance this rule that is going to require public corporations to disclose what sort of climate risk they pose. Now, now go to BlackRock. 
And the reason I don't want to go too far down this road is because I've not looked as I did about BlackRock had employees infiltrate the White House and BlackRock owned, what did we say, Reb? 18 million shares of Pfizer. Pfizer. I mean, we saw how that worked. But, but now a guy that is an old hand at BlackRock is sharing the Security Exchange Commission and he's going to punish, he's going to basically use financial regulations to block investment in fossil fuel. And I'll assure you this, BlackRock is probably more heavily invested in green energy than they are fossil fuel. And that's just the way that business works. It is the business of American politics. It's the business of American government. And it shouldn't be that way. We, the people, should be the priority. And innovation and technology and automation and entrepreneurship should allow competition in the marketplace. And the marketplace chooses winners and losers. But as long as there are companies like BlackRock or Goldman Sachs or some of these major financial institutions infiltrating elements within our federal government, we're going to get a distorted market. So it's not just, you know, Jeff and I are arguing and Scott Kaufman and I are arguing about, you know, their words yesterday were ambitious, right? I mean, both those guys said that. You know, Biden is very ambitious. No, he's detached from reality. And the detachment from reality has been promulgated and supported and propped up and distorted by the Security Exchange Commission that is basically weaponizing the government using financial regulation to block investment in fossil fuel. Well, if you block investment in fossil fuel, what's more likely to happen? The price of gas gets more expensive, right? I mean, if you block investment in fossil fuels, the natural reaction is less money going in to that sector of the economy. That part of the economy gets more expensive. That's just a reality. That is intentional, it's guys. It's almost like it's the well, goal, I mean, right? I mean, Breeze says this a lot. This is not incompetence. I mean, this is not incompetence at all. And you got to dig a little bit to find where the competency is. And I think the competency is here. There's a guy named Gary Gensler. Google him. He's the chairman of the SEC. That is an unbelievably powerful appointment. He's distorting the economy. Is he doing it because he's incompetent? Do you really believe that a guy that runs the SEC, formerly of BlackRock, is incompetent? I would argue he's unbelievably competent and knows exactly what he's doing, and he's going to force this economy, kicking and screaming, to bail on fossil fuels, if at all possible, in preference to green energy. Let's go to the phone. Speaking of Breeze, here he is. Hey, Breeze. Hey, guys. Um, you know, the thing is, is we keep pretending, and that's our big mistake, that they're doing this altruistically, like they're really doing what's best for the world, best for all of the people of the world, and they have good intentions, and they don't. So we've already proven that the majority of Americans and the majority of the world will be obedient, daggle, serfs, and wear their masks. They found that out. So when you control food, you control money, you control energy, they can turn your lights off at your house anytime they want. They can turn your car off anytime they want. They can turn your government card that has the daggone, um, that, yeah, you don't have cash anymore. They control your bank accounts. They can control what your loans are. Do you think the rest of us guys that didn't wear a mask will want to stand up to a bed? Hell no. If you ain't got no power, you can't get to work, you can't get a load, you can't eat, you can't do nothing, that, then you're in that same boat. And it's funny because just yesterday, I was talking to a friend of mine that was in Argentina. He said, oddly enough, all the people in here in Argentina are together. You know, you keep it, we need to come together when they have to come together. But they come together too late because they come together under the realization that they all are being equally screwed 
by their corrupt government. And so when the time comes when Scott Hoffman and you and I and the rest of us all come together, that would be the point where we all realize we've been screwed and it'd be too damn late. So right now we got half the country daggone believing that daggone we're all getting screwed and the other half of the country think that they're winning somehow. And so until it comes to the fact that we don't realize before the fact, you know what I'm saying, we got to realize before we realize, you know, the quicker we realize we're all being screwed together, that's when you can change it. You can't change it once it's already to the point where you have no power. But they have all of these things accomplished. Yeah, we'll all come together and say, yeah, we're screwed. But then it will be too late. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Um, do we realize that? I mean, to Breeze's point, do we really? And, and what do we do? I mean, if we believe, if half the, I say a third of the country, if a third of the country genuinely believe, and I hate to use this to Glenn Beck, the Great Reset, because mm-hmm. <laughs> if Beck can get out there, uh, I can get out there. I mean, I get out there a lot further than I did eight or 10 years ago, 20 years ago in particular. I mean, I, I get out there now because I play these scenarios out in my head and I don't believe they're unintentional. I just got a text a second ago about Bitcoin. Some of what they're doing now about um, the mining of Bitcoin requires what? Energy. So if you're mining for Bitcoin, all of a sudden you got you to um, publicly disclose your, I guess, your, um, your climate risk and climate policies and um, this, this scope three emissions standard that the SEC. I mean, the SEC is a financial regulation uh, entity or body. But it's about they're going to use every weapon they have. Well, right? and, and that's the point I'm making, Rev. You understand that. Well, I mean, it's unfair to say that you are aware of that. I mean, you believe that you are aware now that the government is not your friend. The government is trying to distort the way we live our lives uh, in, in preference to the way they want us to live our lives. Mm-hmm. You you want to live your life a certain way. Breeze wants to live his life a certain way. Um, Larry and, and Charles, they want to live their lives a certain way. And sometimes that certain way is not consistent with the way this modern woke um, socialist, you know, mindset is in Washington. And, and it really is. I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, there, there were there were accusations made about Josh Hawley being too aggressive uh, toward the um, the most recent Supreme Court nominee, um, Kajanji Jackson, and uh, Andy McCarthy at the National Review basically said that, you know, uh, Josh Hawley's uh, accountings were, were improper. I mean, the way he represented what what the um, what Miss Jackson did what was just a little bit unfair. Uh, the Babylon Bee fly, the USA Today, I'll give you two examples here. This, this is the path we need to take. Andy McCarthy is a regarded conservative thought leader. I mean, he's a legal scholar. Um, he writes for the National Review. I told you during the um, during the the Russia collusion investigation. I mean, we knew there was nothing there, and McCarthy made it obvious to begin with. There's nothing here. I mean, this is a total political witch hunt. And McCarthy is a conservative, not not a Trump fan. I mean, he would be a um a cocktail conservative. He would be a you know a dinner party conservative. He's the guy that's on uh, all the lists for the important cocktail parties in Washington. Um. So to, so to breeze this point, and the point we're trying to drive home here now, McCarthy is a conservative thought leader. And, and McCarthy is someone whom I listen to. I mean, when he writes articles in the National Review, I read nearly everything McCarthy writes because he's smart and he's conservative. But you know what he's not? He's not fearless. He's not in your face. He wants his name to stay on those lists. 
of cocktail parties and supper clubs. I mean, the last thing he wants to happen at the end of his illustrious conservative life is to be regarded as somewhat of a hayseeder hillbilly or troublemaker. The guy the Babylon Bee is very different. So the USA Today names, what is it, Levin, uh, first name? Uh, Rachel. Rachel Levin. Um, they name her, him, as their woman of the, of the year. The Babylon Bee names him as their man of the year. I mean, it's satire. Yeah, I mean, Babylon B is a satire website and But Twitter. it's in your face. It's fearless. Yeah. We're not going to win this culture war. We're not going to win the war for the heart and soul of America, whether it's finance or, or spiritual or economic. It doesn't matter. I mean, we're not going to win this battle fighting it the way Andy McCarthy believes we can fight and win. Andy McCarthy believes we can win on principle. We can win on virtue. We can win on ideas. No, we're going to win because we knock the hell out of the left. But we kick them in the growing. And while they're down, we kick them in the chin. Look what and they then do we stomp to, on their head. Look what they do to us. You better believe it. I mean, they, they have made the ground rules. We've refused to accept those ground rules, but they've made very clear what they're willing to do. Watch this hearing with Smith-Jackson and, and compare it to what happened to Kavanaugh. I mean, just think about that for a second. Just think about Kavanaugh and think about Miss Jackson. The different tenor, the different nature. And when Hawley gets a little bit aggressive, a conservative thought leader like McCarthy says, whoa, that's out of bounds. We don't do it that way. We better start doing it that way. You better understand that you're dealing with a very serious foe. I mean, Russia is a geopolitical adversary. China is a geopolitical adversary. If you're an American conservative, the American political left is not your friend. That They will kick you in the growing. When you go to your knees, they'll kick you in the chin. You better be willing to do the same. Andy McCarthy's not willing to do the same. Those at the Babylon B are. And if we're going to confront this culture war, win this culture war, we're not going to do it the way McCarthy says do it. We're going to have to do it the way the Babylon B and some of these very aggressive voices in conservative circles. Because I can tell you this, the last thing the left wants is to be stood up against. They don't believe, they believe that they can bully. And we're afraid of the bully. And we'll kowtow to the bully. And we'll write another article that National Review about how virtuous we should be and how respectful we should be. Forget that. I mean, this is a war for the heart and soul of this country. Forget China and Russia for a second. There is an internal struggle that we're battling, and we're not going to win it uh, fighting the decent battle. We're just not. If they kick you in the growing and you go to your knees, they're going to kick you in the face. You better be willing to do the same thing. Remember how the left activists acted during the Kavanaugh hearings? Remember, they, they kind of stormed the Capitol. Sure. They, they chased the members of uh, the Senate down the hallways and yelled at them getting on elevators and were very aggressive. Remember well, I mean, that? Yes, of course I do. I mean, they stormed the elevators. They stormed yeah. the building. But that doesn't matter because that's in alignment with the Atlantic Magazine of the New York Times mm-hmm. and the traditional mainstream press. Your press is corrupt. I want to go to a story here with Candace Owens in just a couple of minutes. But let's take a break. We got a caller? Uh, Hang on there. We'll get back to you as soon as we take this break and pay these bills. Hey, I did have someone tell me yesterday, there's a success story with all the inflation. You ready? Let's break the ice here for a second. Had a pretty intense segment in the last segment. I had someone tell me yesterday that inflation has put them back on their feet. I said, do what? I said, yeah, inflation's putting me back on my feet. Um, The bank repossessed my car and I'm walking again. So there, there's a well, there's, there's a way inflation has put someone back on back on their feet. There's some good in all this inflation, Rip. Let's go to the yeah. mall. Uh, here's Jeff in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Jeff. Good morning, guys. How are you this morning? Hey, Jeff. How are you? 
pretty good. Thank you. Your, your discussion is very interesting. I I, uh, I hear snippets throughout the, the week and the month and, and appreciate your insight. I had a, a few thoughts about a, about the way Ken puts it, the, the enemy that we're fighting it and, and their ideas, you know, I thought back when I was a kid, when I was in elementary school, I wrote a, I wrote a little story in school about how we should take care of pollution and garbage by, by using it to run our vehicles and, and all the kids thought that was a good idea. A 10 year old kid a teacher with critical thinking said, well, what happens when the garbage runs out? And well, I didn't think of that. And I think our, the other side politicians are trying to change everybody that votes into, into a nine or 10 year old in their critical thinking. And they, they, they never, take it to its logical conclusion and they don't want people to take it to the logical conclusion. And I, I especially know this from, from NPR. I listened to it. I remember about a year ago and the teacher was interviewing some, some little kids about, uh, about marriage relationships. And they said, we need to change the laws or they were hoping to change the laws so that you can marry your best friend. Well, marriage meant a sleepover, just hanging out. And the kids were all excited. Hey, I can marry my, my friends sitting next to me and we can hang out all the time. And one kid said, I can marry my dog. Well, that's kind of cute thing that little kids, you know, but take that to its logical conclusion and, and have a teenager or a 20-year-old or a 50-year-old say the same thing, and that's really disgusting. And uh, I think that's what we have to, <laughs> have to do with the left and the liberals is to show them the logical conclusion, and that's all I have to say. Thank, Thank you, you, Jeff. That's a lot. appreciate you listening. Thank you for the kind words. Uh, I want to say this. Well-spoken or well-written means absolutely nothing if you're writing about or speaking about something that has no logical foundation. No, no principled value. It, and it really goes back. I mean, this has been the history of American politics. I mean, you know, Kennedy was a great speaker. Reagan was a great speaker. Clinton was a great speaker. George W. Bush, not a good speaker. Barack Obama was a great speaker. Trump, wow. I mean, what kind of speaker is he? Um, Jefferson was a great writer. Lincoln was a great orator, a great writer. Um, you see where I'm headed? I mean, politics is not an academic exercise. I mean, political theorizing is. I mean, it is. I mean, there's no political theorists are, in essence, um, exercising academically or theorizing about what may or may not be the case. But, but when you look at energy, when you look at how we're going to produce energy for the next generation or two or three, well-written and well-spoken means absolutely nothing. I don't care how engaging the writer from the Atlantic Magazine articulated her opinion of that seminar she went to on green energy in San Francisco. It's still a pipe dream. It's still a farce. It's fantastical. It, it makes no sense. But, but the liberal mind, and maybe I, I'm not a liberal mind, so I don't know what motivates those folks. I mean, I am a, I take that as a compliment. I'm a very practical man. I have lived where the rubber hits the road. The oil meets the oil, in essence. I mean, that's where I've lived the majority of my life. I put together business pro formas, but you know what the bank looks at? That's made up. You know those numbers don't make any sense. 
I mean, you, you got to be honest. You got to be practical. You got to be um, sincere about, you know, wh- where do you believe you'll end up? And, and in business, you learn that well-spoken and well-written means absolutely nothing. I mean, it's bright, shiny objects. And at times it may hoodwink an investor or a banker or something like that. But at the end of the day, the, the rooster comes home to roost. I mean, the, 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 the proof is in the pudding. It is, uh, it is what you said it is or it is not. And in, and in politics, Reb, there, there's the perpetual, the perpetuating of, of nonsense because there are no metrics and measures that hold people accountable. I mean, we live in a country now, the most prosperous country in the history of mankind, where your Congress will, before the end of the day, appropriate money that they don't have. The Federal Reserve will buy that debt with money they don't have. The only difference is they've got the ability to create it. I mean, we can, we can speak and write about that in a way that convinces you, well, I mean, there's nothing to see here. We've actually came up with it. We've come up with a theory. We've got trained and, and scholarly academic uh, academic-inclined economists who say modern monetary theory is real. You know what modern monetary theory is? As long as the government prints its money and buys its own debt, there is no consequence. There is no end in sight. We can be a uh, $1,000 dollars in debt and it not matter. But, but meanwhile, the practical man, the practical woman are dealing with $4 gasoline. I heard somebody say yesterday they buy protein powder. From one of these, you know, one of these health stores, and it's at the gym. And he said it went from four ninety nine per package to six twenty nine per package in two weeks. I mean, it's probably going to seven fifty a package. Uh, when you increase liquidity, when you increase the money supply, and you have the same productive capacity of an economy, guess what happens? Inflation takes hold, and things cost more. But you can't, you know, Barack Obama can give a two hour speech and convince you that we're going to stop burning fossil fuel in 10 years. There is no practical way to get there. There is no logical way to get there. But if Obama inspires the liberal mind, he believes it. If an article is so well written in the Atlantic magazine or, or the Huffington Post or the New York Times, the liberal mind, ah, that was invigorating. That was liberating. <laughs> that really feels good. That person, I mean, that is so well written, but that's all it is. It's well written or it's well said and well written is not an accomplishment. Well said is not an accomplishment. It's simply a written word and a spoken word. And some people do it better than others. But at the end of the day, 70% of this planet's energy is produced by coal and oil. I don't give a damn who says what. Who writes what? It's going to take a heavy lift by a lot of people to influence or change that. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence, you're on the air. Hey, morning, guys. You were talking about that oil pump, the first one, I think it was 1862. The company um, that become Standard Oil, um, John D. Rockefeller started that. But I think you'd have to dig a little deeper down the rabbit hole and talk about the owners of this country, like the Rothschild, J.P. Morgan, you know, the ones that own the wealth. I don't know about this Great Reset. I'm not buying that book. I don't really care about that or any pain pills or rough greens or whatever he's trying to sell me when I listen to the radio. But, yeah, to kind of get a little understanding, I know it goes right into that conspiracy thing, you know, that Alex Jones territory, but there's a lot of truth in that. I'll take it off the air. Thank you. Appreciate that. I'm the only talk show host not taking Relief Factor. I'm convinced <laughs> of that. I don't know about Rough Greens. I think that's some of the dog food supplements or whatever. Or beets. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's, it's interesting. I'm going to chastise my own profession here for a second. <laughs> oh, here we go. Well, I mean, it is. You know, this irks me to no end. Um, some of the things that conservative radio show hosts are willing to say and do over the airways for a buck bothers me. I mean, it really does. I mean, it, it is, does, air, does sitting in a chair behind a microphone cause you to have more aches and pains than a coal miner or a roofer or a construction worker or an NFL football player? Because I think I'm the only, and maybe that's jealousy and envy, I think I'm the only radio show host in America not being compensated to say Relief Factor will change your life if only you try it. Well, maybe you should try well, it. Well, maybe. I don't need my life changed. <laughs> you know, I think I understand. You know how to change your life. You start making better you decisions. You don't think you need start, to start change Start doing things life. the right way. I mean, you want to change your life? Forget Relief Factor for a second. Lose some weight, go to the gym, eat better, exercise a little bit. You won't need Relief Factor. But, yeah, it's just, it irks me to no end because this is, I believe – a profession that could be taken more seriously if it took itself more seriously. Does that make sense? I mean, you and I have had this discussion since we've been on the, on the airways. The super server, you know, and the um, give them the red meat they love and give them the red meat they need. And we've tried to do somewhat of a combination here of that as well as tell me something I don't know. I mean, every talk show in America today will be talking about Hunter Biden and the laptop. You know what we know about Hunter Biden and the laptop? The media lied. The tech companies covered it up. Am I going to talk about that for four hours? It would bore me to death. I would hope it would bore you to death. But we could come in here at 6.05 in the morning, and we could start talking about Hunter Biden and the laptop. I want to hear more about it. Well, I mean, everybody's talking about it. But what are they saying? I mean, you're, you're redundantly repeating something. There's redundancy. You're redundantly <laughs> repeating something that has already been said over and over and over again. Hunter Biden is corrupt. The Biden family are political prostitutes. They had relationships in Ukraine and China and anywhere they could get one. If, if, the, if, the, if the Biden family did not have a relationship in Italy, it's because nobody offered. If they didn't have a relationship in Germany, it's because nobody offered. So to say that we're going to surprise you and tell you, you something you don't, you know the Biden family is corrupt. You know the Hunter Biden laptop was authentic. You know the media and tech companies ran interference. Why are we going to spend four hours regurgitating things that we already know? What does that accomplish? I think it's far more interesting to have debates and conversations about things you're not sure of and I'm not sure of. When do we begin weaning ourselves off fossil fuel? I don't know. Do you? I mean, we have this debate. The liberals say it's ambitious. I say it's um, fantastical. It's not going to happen. I mean, I'm not going to live. Nobody listening to my voice right now is going to live in a period of time where we don't generate a, a high percentage of our energy via fossil fuels. But, but Rev, I mean, you, you asked me a couple of days ago, what, what do you think about this Hunter Biden? I think it's the same thing I thought about it two years ago. When, when, when Vinny Barbarino went on um, Tucker Carlson show and said 10% for the big guy, I know that happened. You know that happened. Mm -hmm. But I know nothing's going to be done about it. And you know nothing's going to be done about it. The only thing that could happen is the Republicans gain control of the House and Senate they appoint investigative committees, and they subpoena certain records and documents, and they get to the bottom of it. But I'm not going to bore you nor me with regurgitating the report from Politico or the report from TheHill.com. It was always authentic. The Biden family are corrupt. Hunter Biden is a, is, is a kid of privilege who has terribly mismanaged his life, and he's embarrassed the family name. But it's the business. It's the family business. Yeah, it's but here's the way my question. 
Is our president compromised? Of course he is. Give me an American president who's not. Give me, give me somebody who sat in the White House at some degree is not compromised. In this way? Well, I mean, I, I can't think of one. I mean, do you think Trump was compromised in any way, shape, or form? I mean, it, I don't know. the American presidency has such a wide variety of, of abilities. It's, you're going to always bump into compromising positions and compromising situations. Do you do the right thing or not? I mean, that, at the end but of the can, day, but can you draw such a direct line as you as it appears you can draw with the with the evidence sure. from this laptop to I other presidents? It, I think it is the greatest political scandal of my lifetime. But but I don't know. I mean, I I don't write for the New York Times. I mean, we can do our little part here, but what is our little part here? I mean, if we're going to really wake up every morning consumed by what Hunter Biden and the Biden family have done and what the media is not going to do. Did Twitter censor? Yes. Did Facebook censor? Yes. Is the New York Times corrupt? Yes. Is the Biden family political prostitutes? Yes. Are they corrupt? Yes. Did Joe Biden politically or economically gain uh, via some sort of um, direct or indirect payment to his son? Yes. All of that is true. But nobody's going to do anything about it until the Republicans gain control of the House. And then we got to find out this. Are we going to be the Andy McCarthy Republicans and say, well, that's in the past? You know, the way you make a country better is to be looking forward and visionary and inspirational. Or are we going to do what they would do and dig up dirt and try to embarrass the Bidens and try to incarcerate the Bidens? Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, talking about Hunter Biden. I mean, that, that is the topic in Washington. I mean, that, that's the, I mean, a lot of the, and, and here's where we go with this, Rev. You got degrees of interest in American politics, right? I mean, the, 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 the interest in the Hunter Biden story is it's been around a long, long time. Um, we believe the media ran interference and, and censored a lot of the uh, opinions. I think you said the other day, and I think I read this, 17% of Biden voters said had they known mm-hmm. more about that situation, they were probably not voted for Joe Biden. So potentially change the outcome well, I mean, of the election. If you're a serious voter, shouldn't you have known about it? I, I mean, thought so. But I mean, shouldn't you have known about it and questioned whether or not the media is running interference? Here's the, here's the notion today. Here's the reality today. The media is always running interference. The American corporate media is corrupt. If I don't say anything else that you remember today, this is not a lesson. It would not be a pop quiz. You know this. So why do I restate this over and over and over again? It's really why I tire of some of the national shows. I mean, I don't think the national shows give the audience as much credit as the audience deserves. Maybe we're a little different here. Maybe this local connection that we have is a little more intense and deep. But I believe that you guys want to hear something you've not heard yet. I think when you get in your car in the morning and you start your combustion engine up, a few of you driving Teslas, <laughs> shame on you liberals, I think that you want to hear or have a discussion, a conversation about things you didn't hear over the last week or so. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but, but the national shows have this drumbeat methodology and it's Hunter Biden and the Biden family and the national media. You know what happened there. The majority of you listening to my voice know that Joe Biden probably got paid and Vinnie Barbarino was probably telling the truth when he says save 10% for the big guy. The media knows that, but the media has chosen to put as um, secondary its responsibility for reporting accurately the news 
Instead, they're a cheerleading section and a propaganda arm of the American political left. And Biden, despite his career not being uh, of liberal orthodoxies and liberal ideologies, I mean, we, we believe, and I, I do believe this, I think Biden was a Northeast liberal until he got older in life, and I think he wanted desperately to be president, and the deal was made, um, we'll stop Bernie Sanders, but you've got to do what we want done. I mean, if we don't stop Bernie Sanders, he's going to beat you, and then we will have a nut. We don't believe you're a nut. We think you're old and in cognitive decline, but we believe you could, we could twist your arm. We believe that you've got a chance to beat Trump. We don't believe Bernie Sanders has a chance. But if you want to beat Trump, you stay in that basement, keep your wife shut up, and we'll get you elected. I don't know what we'll do, but we'll figure out a way to get you elected. Well, I've got these issues. Don't worry about those issues, Joe. Sit down and be quiet. Let us do the work. We got this Mark Zuckerberg guy who's willing to spend a half billion dollars in the name of getting you elected. We'll get you elected. You just stay out of the way. So Biden is not whom he historically has been. Biden has always been left to center. He's always been a, a Northeast liberal. He's never been a radical. But he's morphed into a radical because he wanted to be president so bad, he's willing to sell his soul. And now he's run by whom? The Obama acolytes. Oh, that's who's running the White House. In essence, that's who's running the American government. That's why you've got uh, SEC regulatory uh, provisions that are going to penalize or, or basically um, use financial regulations to discourage or block investment in fossil fuel. I mean, Biden historically has not been there. Once again, he is a liberal. There is no doubt. He's far more sympathetic to government than you or I. But he wanted to be president, and he made a deal. I'll stay home. You get me elected. Promise me that I can have some of my in-laws sleep in the Lincoln bedroom, and I'll do whatever you say do. And that includes using financial regulations to block investments in fossil fuels using the Security Exchange Commission, which is a bit bizarre. Back in a minute. Let me ask you a question, Rev. Hmm? If America had a soundtrack, if the nation had a soundtrack, and you could choose a rock and roll band to perform the soundtrack. I choose the Eagles. Who do you choose? Yeah, I'd be on board with that. A rock and roll band. Okay, let's yep. get to country music. If America had a country soundtrack, who do oh. you get to perform the country music version of America's soundtrack? <laughs> now, obviously, this is a um, this would be a generational thing. Sure. I mean, if you grew up in the fifties, you would have a Elvis would probably write the soundtrack of America, and Hank Williams Sr. may write, well, he wasn't alive long enough, but someone like that. Um, so so in, in, in mine and your generation, you're a little younger than I am. Look a lot older, but you're younger, yeah, actually. Right, yeah. um, I get mistaken <laughs> for your son a lot you? when we're out and about. Yeah, um, I Just as that. I do with my wife. I mean, my <laughs> wife gets mistaken for my mother a lot when we're, <laughs> when we're out and about. It happens all the time. Yeah, it does. It happens all the time. Um, so, so if the Eagles, if I choose the Eagles and you choose the Eagles, um, to write the the soundtrack of America, what country music artist is to write the soundtrack of America? One comes to mind for me, Alabama. Yeah, but, but that, that's good. a generational yeah. thing. I mean, that, that's you know, I remember them well, and to me, they represent and sing about Americana in a in a very relatable fashion for a small town kid uh, from South Carolina. I want to I want to go back down this road because you and I were talking a second ago, and and you get frustrated with me. And sometimes you don't say it. I mean, <laughs> what you, do you mean frustrated? Well, I mean, you talking about not covering the yeah, Hunter Biden I, I laptop? I get off on these tangents, and it's almost like you're, you're convinced that because I want to be a contrarian, I'm not going to do what everybody else is doing. 
Am I, I wrong? Mean, well, I mean, to some degree, you're right. But but it, those things bore me after a while. They need to be covered, though, well, I mean, we, especially we on this forum. But we can cover it in about three minutes. The Biden family is corrupt. Joe Biden has profited, and many members of his family have profited by his association with being a senator or a vice president or, or now a president. Joe Biden's kid has had a very complicated life. Um, and, and I mean this sincerely. I don't take any joy in that. I mean, some of the uh, some of the posts I see of, you know, drugs and and pornography, and I mean, I don't take any joy in that. I'm just not wired that way. Maybe that's got a lot to do with the way I was brought up. I mean, I just don't, I don't like kicking people while they're down unless they've asked for a fight. Uh, and, and the Biden kid, now, now he's fair game because he's decided to not just be the president's kid, but to be the president's business associate and to figure out a way to profit off of his daddy's name and his, and his, you know, his family name. So yes, I mean, he's fair game now, but I don't take any joy in any of that. When I see Biden struggle with drugs, I don't take any humanistic joy in that. There's no pleasure in articulating that. Now, he should be um, he should be dealt with as the law deals with people who um, violate the law in that form and fashion. By that, I mean um, being on the board of an energy company in, you know, in Ukraine named Burisma with no energy and experience. Um, and now we're declaring war or trying to figure out what to do or what not to do. Uh, in Ukraine, that's a little bit coincidental. There might be, there, there may be some irony in there. I don't know, but but to the to that point, can we talk about that for four hours? I mean, can we have call after call after call? Hey, I think Biden's corrupt. I do too. I think Biden got paid. I do too. I think Vinny Barbarino told the truth. I do too. I think the the Twitter, excuse me, the social media sites, Twitter and and Facebook censored. I do too. I think the New York Times refused to cover it until it was um past the point of no return. In other words, if Biden's approval ratings were 48 or 9 or 50 or 51, they still wouldn't be reporting it. But Biden's kind of dead weight now. I mean, they believe that he's um, ineffective in getting Democrats elected in the midterm, so he's not a favored son any longer. And they'll go after him as they would anybody else because they need a news story. So all of that, I mean, we can cover that in two or three minutes. Is, is Biden's son being corrupt and being paid and maybe saving 10% for the big guy as important as how we're going to power the economy for the next generation, two or three? To me, it's not. I mean, it's not incidental. It needs to be covered. It needs to be talked about. And we did. But for four hours or three hours or two and a half hours, I mean, I listened to a show yesterday, and for about an hour and a half, it was all about that. And it was just over and over and over and over and over again and and, I and, just and all those dots are connected, by well, the I mean, way, I because can't. if you believe that uh, big tech censored and potentially because of the timing uh, changed the outcome of the election, and this is the, as you say, rest and rev- residue of the election turning out like it did, and now we're paying the price. We know big tech censored. Right. I don't know that 17% of people would change their mind. I don't have any idea. That's speculation. Some polling, I mean, that's speculating. Some polling says that. Uh, the, the point I'm trying to make is... I think talk radio limits itself at times. There are two or three stories out there at all times, and we feel forced to talk about those two or three stories because that's the um, that's the hot-button issue of the moment. And I just think there's so many other things that are important. I, I made a note to myself this morning. Politics has always been a breeding ground for opportunism. Grifting has always been a part of American politics. I'm reading a lot now about CPAC and the America First movement and the, um, the national conservatives and the populism within. You know what I'm worried about? That the anti-establishment is going to become established. 
The Tea Party was a very noble part of the Republican Party. Um, the conservative Christian, uh, the, the Christian conservative movement was a very noble part. You know what happened to both? They got hijacked. The anti-establishment element within both of those gave in to the establishment. Will, will the national conservative movement, will, will the, the Peter Thiels of the world, the Blake Masters of the world, and the Donald Trumps of the world, and the J.D. Vances and Tucker Carlson's of the world, will they stand firm? Will they agree to take on not only the Democrats, but the establishment within their political party? Um, in other words, are we going to place one elite with another version of elite? Are the, are the national conservatives elite wannabes, establishment wannabes, and this is the way they can get in the room? Um, Matt Schlapp is the guy that heads up CPAC. He's a grifter. He's an opportunist. And all of a sudden now, remember the room I told you I was in at the Trump meeting, mm -hmm. uh, the Trump pre-rally event when we were in the airplane hangar? Um, all of those people are trying to figure out a way to create opportunities for themselves within a world that they see coming. They don't believe in America first. They don't believe in national conservatism. They're in a populist bone in most of their bodies. But they see this train leaving the station, and they don't want to get left behind. So do we allow those people to participate in this movement? Do we keep them in their place, or do they take it over? Because you know what they're better, better at than we are? They're better at politics. And once again, politics has always been a breeding ground for grifting, a breeding ground for opportunism. Um, we're a bit naive to that. I don't think I am because I've held office. Most of you are a bit naive. You think J.D. Vance, there's no chance J.D. Vance will give in. There's no chance that Peter Thiel will give in. There's no chance that Donald Trump will give in. Rhonda DeSantis will give in. Now, there's a good chance. There's a very good chance. And 20 years from now, the anti-establishment has become the establishment, and they're going along and getting along just as these um, changers or these game changers from generations gone by. Hey, uh, speaking of J.D. Vance, I saw a very interesting Twitter the other day, or a tweet, I guess, from Donald Jr. So we've kind of talked about the history of J.D. Vance. He was... Uh, being accused of being a, an anti-Trumper at some point. He was. Based on some things he said, right? And Trump endorsed his opponent and then pulled, kind of pulled back the advertising of that endorsement, right? He said that Vance sounded more like an America firster than Handel did or Handel. Right, right. So so Donald Jr. is like, you know, you guys are calling uh, J.D. a uh, an anti-Trumper, and that's not true. You know, he is America first. And then he comes back and tweets, hey, that's not an endorsement, but you guys need to get off his back about this. Well, so here's, the, here's the problem. You endorsed a guy that you thought was going to win, right. and now you think maybe J.D. Vance could win. <laughs> I said it to begin with. Give J.D. Vance an opportunity, and he'll impress. You did. And I think he has. I mean, his polling numbers are climbing. I don't think he's the favorite yet. I still think it's a uh, – I think he's a – I think it's a three-way race. I don't know the name. Handles won. Uh, they had a bit of a brouhaha at the last debate, and, uh, and J.D. handled himself very well. I think J.D. Vance is an America first in his DNA because he grew up in Appalachia. I mean, he's lived a lot yeah, of what story. we've... Oh, no question yeah. about it. I mean, it's um, I mean, it's very relatable to me. J.D. Vance's life is unbelievable, unbelievably relatable to me. Donald Trump's is not. I mean, I accept Trump. Trump went, I mean, Trump was a privileged kid, uh, went to the best schools, uh, probably always had money, uh, probably didn't fly commercial very often. I mean, most of us don't live that way. But J.D. Vance lived the majority of his life, until he bumped into a guy named Peter Thiel, he, he lived the majority of his life just like we do. That's why I think he's going to be so relatable. And at the end of the day, that relatability and authenticity, I think, will win uh, the race for Senate in Ohio. But, but the point, I mean, w w the, the anti-establishment sentiments are right now the most valuable currency 
of any political movement. I mean, I think the left knows that. I mean, I think Jeff, in his heart of hearts, I think Scott Coppin, in his heart of hearts, they understand that this anti-establishment sentiment is the uh, it, it, it is the, the, the most, I mean, I like to say the most valuable currency in a political movement. Um, that's kind of, you know, that's politics speak or political speak 101. Um, but but will, will the new Republican um, world order, that's a Biden phrase, but will the new Republican world order um, capitulate and subvert itself Will it capitulate as the Republicans historically have to the the more moderate Republicans and the the liberal Democrats, or will it continue to subvert itself to the will of the voter? There you go. That's a decent way to say it. Because historically, we've elected Republican candidates who say what? Give me a chance to go fight for you, right? I mean, how many mailers have you got? How many television ads have we seen? A Republican candidate say, give me the chance to go to Washington and I'll fight. You know what they do? They capitulate. They make deals. They become the the status quo politician and that subverts the will of the voter. But but will they do that or will they go and stand fast and stand tall and, and stand true to this national conservatism, this America first agenda? Um, see, see, to me, that's an interesting radio show. I mean, that's a four-hour radio discussion you can have with an audience of listenership who by and large, I mean, I don't know the percentage of listeners. It would be interesting to know. The percentage of listeners that identify as Republican that support this national conservative America first movement or not. I mean, I think it's 70-30. I mean, I, you know, we're talking about the, the the battle within the Republican Party. There's a battle within. There's no question about it. But there's a heavy man on the on the swing set, and then there's a not-so-heavy man, excuse me, on the, uh, on the seesaw. And I think America first is obviously the heavy man on the uh, on the seesaw, I was talking with a House member at the Trump event last Saturday, Saturday before last, and um, and we were talking about some things the Republican Party believed. Um, the Republican Party, the Republican hierarchy, believe that Trump has um, I don't want to say control, but Trump has the ear of about forty percent of Republican voters. I think it's sixty percent. I mean, I think they're off not four or five points. I think they're off twenty percent. I think there's so many people in our universe that will not publicly express their support for America first or Donald Trump, but they know damn well he was a good president. And they know looking for American, looking out for American interest is what a political party should do. Now, now publicly expressing that puts them in um, kind of disagreement with their their peers and their social standing, and, and they want to be respected, they want to be revered, they want to be appreciated. More than anything, they want to be um, not ostracized and not cast aside and not alienated from uh, their, their normal affairs and the way they conduct their lives. And Trump has this certain negative association or connotation with him. So in certain circles, if you say I'm a Trumpster, um, you're punished, you're penalized. Um, not in mine. I mean, I've made it very public. Um, I am a, um, I am a, I'm, I'm one of the biggest believers that you could imagine for America first. I'm, I'm far more a believer in America first than I am a devotion to a single, a single man. But of the 60%, some are devoted to a single man, and they respect and admire and appreciate all he's done on behalf of the movement. The others are so frustrated with the opportunism that the Republicans have exhibited over the years, they wanted something different. But, but the, the 40% number is probably 40% who will publicly express 
Yeah. I mean, I'm not ashamed. I am for Trump. I am for America first. If Trump doesn't run, I want Ron DeSantis. But there's another 20%, and Kahaley believes this, that just won't answer the question. Are you an America firster? Uh, what is that? It's what you are. But you don't want to say it because you're a member of a country club or you go to a supper club every Friday or Saturday night. So, so when you look at there's an interesting article in the National Review today, actually, um, the self-servitude that plagues national conservatism. Guess who's the picture? Guess who's the illustration of self-servitude that is plaguing national conservatism? I'll give you a guess. I mean, just tell me who you think it is. Remember now the self-servitude that plagues national conservatism. <laughs> is it a politician? It's a politician. Mitt Romney? Ted Cruz. Really? Romney doesn't fake it. I mean, Romney has no use for this. I mean, Romney's not trying to be self-serving. Mitt Romney says, this is a horrible idea. This is a bad way to go. This will devastate the party in the long run. We need to, re- we need to restore the principles of, um, you know, limited government and personal responsibility. The, the, the typical thing you would expect somebody like Mitt Romney to say. He, I believe some of it. He probably doesn't believe some of the others. But Ted Cruz, there is no instance in his life previous to Donald Trump that suggests he has one iota of national conservatism. I mean, there's nothing. But all of a sudden, Cruz shows up at CPAC, and he wants to be the keynote speaker. Um, is that self-servitude or is that genuine reflection on who you were and who you need to be? Is it political expediency or is it sincerity? I'll let you um, guess. And once again, I'll say it as I wrote it down this morning. Politics has always been a breeding ground for opportunism. Um, Ted Cruz, is he a an America firster? I mean, he appears to be now, but what about him before Trump led you to believe Anything other than uh, a political opportunist. Hmm. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. A couple of people are there. David in the PD. Hi, David. Hey, good morning, Dave. Hey, I say Ken. I think you're talking about the other host on the network or whatever. You might be one of the few people not from Long Island. Uh, I think Bongino is from Long Island. Hannity is from Long Island. Uh, O'Reilly is from Long Island, and Kilmeade's from Long Island. That's kind of interesting. That is interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. That, that That's kind of interesting. And any man that can bring out, start his show out, doggone man, I'm going to give you a thumbs up. Pamplico to Los Angeles. <laughs> kind of reminds me of Jed Clampett. And they were like, first episode, you know what? They got smog out there. And old Jed said, that must be a small hog. So it, it was that I always remember that because back in the 60s, that was a big issue. And I'm going to give some of the climate change people a little degree of a thumbs up on that, too, because they did. They witnessed that. They witnessed this massive pollution. They, these people from Boston, they'll talk about the dirty water or sing about it. Cleveland, the river caught on fire. Well, that back about the 60s, and they people got together, and they started – have EPA and this and that. Um, but it just frustrates me that they've got it to the, it, it's the full-time activist money collecting and it's full-time. They'll never have an issue that won't go away. They always have to, to, to get money off of it. That, that what, is what bothers me the most out of all this. And if you've ever gone to LA, you'll see that it, it, is, a, it is a sprawl. But a lot of people don't have to travel that far 
and and, I, and this I, this is my last point. You have to look at how people live today. Uh, think about the virtual person that works at home. They have the home gym. They they order off of Amazon. They have a Skype room, whatever. What the heck do they need for gasoline? They don't have to go anywhere. They they're totally dependent on somebody bringing them stuff. And I, I I'll be honest with you, I don't like that. I don't like us being just dependent on this virtual world. And I'll leave you at that. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Uh, 843-661-0937 is our number. I just, I mean, I, I guess the beauty of this show, if there is any beauty in this show, I mean, here, here we go. Um, it is the practicality of which we discuss things. I mean, most of us have to live our lives in a very practical way, right? I mean, I tried to make a joke a second ago, went over like a dud, but I had a buddy of mine tell me that inflation has actually put him back on his feet. The bank took his car and he's walking again. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, there's a drum roll there, but but I've just never had the luxury, nor have the majority of you had the luxury to live a life where um, as much credit was there. You took go. Took me a minute to find it. Did. I mean, Cato would have already had that done, I know. but anyway, we know where it was. We'll we'll find the right guy here before long. <laughs> well, there's a right lady here before long. Thank you, Ray. Yeah. Appreciate that. <laughs> but but I don't I don't know that any of us live our lives as academic exercises. I mean, I like theorizing and I like hypothesizing and I like talking and thinking with people and about things uh, that may or may not be true. I think that's very interesting and intriguing conversations. But at some point in time, Reb, our lives have to be rooted in reality. I mean, I, I discussed this with my three kids. I mean, the one thing I think I've done a decent job of with my three kids is convincing them the world owes you nothing. I mean, the reality is that the, the, practical, uh, the, the practical matter that you'll deal with is you'll get out of it what you put into it. But, but politics has become somewhat of, a, of an academic exercise. I mean, I, I use the analogy of the flight simulator. We've talked a lot about that recently. Um, the government or the people in charge of the government govern as if they're, they're, they're trying to not crash a plane, but they're not really in the plane. They're in a flight simulator. We're not in a simulator. None of us live our lives in a simulator. Right, as if there were no real-world consequences. Well, I mean, okay, we can't um, just push the reset We're button. going to spend a trillion dollars that we don't have. Let's jump in the simulator and see what best outcome we can come up with. I mean, we know what the outcome is. You're a trillion dollars in debt. I mean, two plus two equals four. I mean, you may get a one plus one plus one plus one, but you still get to four. Three plus, but you still get to four. I mean, there, there's a fiscal reality. There's a financial reality. There's a reality in all of our lives that we have to address and deal with. And when you say things like, as a presidential candidate, not a conservative radio show host, not some nut who writes for the Atlantic magazine, but when you're running for president of the United States and you look the American public in the eyes and you say, we're going to emit zero carbon in 10 years or 12 years i think uh i've been 20 15 years i mean you, the, the insanity of that the lunacy of that and it's more disturbing that a certain percentage of american population believed it it's a bit ambitious but it's doable it's achievable it's not it's a pop dream it's farcical it's fantastical there is no way for that to be true it's like someone saying, I'm going to not run a sub-two-hour marathon. I'm going to run a sub-one-hour marathon. I mean, some things are just unbelievable because they're impossible. To believe we're going to transition from fossil fuel to a zero-carbon-emitting economy in 15 years is not ambitious. 
Now, now the writer at the New York Times says it's ambitious, and the Atlantic Magazine says it's ambitious, and half the country believe it because it's well-written or it's well-spoken, but it's farcical. It makes no sense. It's not rooted in reality. And I think the frustration that a lot of the American public have with the political world is its disconnect from reality. They live in a flight simulator. You live in the real plane. When the plane crashes, you know what, Rev? People die. Bad things happen. When the simulator crashes and you didn't make it, oh, crap, we thought we could do this modern monetary theory and spend $30 trillion. We didn't have, but look at what happened. Reprogram the simulator, and let's see if we tweaked it a little bit or turned it a little bit. None of us live in that world, but we govern in that way, and we've got to stop that. We've got to uh, ascribe some notion of practicality and responsibility and the real world. I like to say where the rubber hits the road, and we're talking oil, where the oil meets the other oil. <laughs> um, so so where do we, how do we make tires? How do we, how do we um, derive asphalt? How do we make toothbrushes or, or, or tennis shoes, sneakers, sports shoes? I'm sorry, what are they called now? I mean, they're 300 bucks a pair. I saw a pair the other day, some limited edition Jordan Air, like $305. What? Yeah. Mm. What? That's what I said. I said a couple of other things. Like, <laughs> damn. When I'm really caught off guard, here mm-hmm. it is. You ready? Yeah. Damn. <laughs> I mean, it's got a certain inflection that goes along with it. Let's go to the phone. Here's Bert in the PD. Hi, Bert. Here, working on a comedy show today. It's hilarious. I know I freak out every time my wife goes and spends $200 on parachutes, but she says, oh, they held my feet, and she is on her feet all day, so you have to give in to that. You know, I, I think you're giving people way too much credit. This 60% for Trump and that kind of thing, or 40%, because I talk to people all the time, and it's those same people that think, yeah, we can go without any oil at all as they use their cell phone and they, you know, have the clothes that are made out of oil and they drive their car and they're crazy. They they can't do math. And those same people are telling me that I have a mental problem to support Trump because Trump should be in prison and that Biden is literally the better president. And what's going on right now is the price of Trump being such a jerk the whole time he was in there and causing all this foreign problems and being a bully you know they, they literally believe that they've been taught that their whole life you can't be a bully you know we talked about that but the fact of the matter is they don't know a real man when they see one now granted he gets a little overboard he wants to punch back hard if you just say something about him but this is the thing that they're doing on a daily basis and I'm, they truly believe this is caused by trump and Biden is helping us out of it. And that's their view. So it worries me greatly that we don't have enough people out there for Trump uh, or DeSantis, either one. I mean, it's just that is their view. And somewhere our education system has failed them and made them think they're so smart and they can't add two plus two. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone else is on the phone. Joe in Hartsville is next. Hello, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. The, it's amazing. The, the energy policy that we have now is like the guy and his wife that saved up all their life and bought, took them 50 years to save and bought the house of their dreams. And they're 
prosperous and they're doing great, and all of a sudden they want to downsize and build a new house. But instead of waiting to build the new house, they move out of the old house and live in the yard while the new house is being built, and it's going to take them two and a half years to build the house. That's how stupid this is. I mean, we worked for 50, 60, 70 years to get energy independence, and the minute that we get it, they want to do away with it. And these are the same people that that are talking about batteries, and they're protesting the lithium mines in northern Utah. Now, where do they think all this energy is going to be captured but in lithium batteries? They they have no sense whatsoever. And, you know, it's amazing. Everybody keeps saying, oh, it's a done deal with this this Supreme Court justice. How how is it a done deal? We have a 50-50 Senate. I understand they're talking about Kamala Harris, but I don't think the uh, Constitution allows for her to vote on a Supreme Court justice because it says the executive branch nominates and the Senate advises and consents. If Kamala Harris is a tie-breaking vote, she's part of the legislative branch, even though she's president of the Senate. She's still part of the nominating. So how can she be the deciding vote to make this uh, Judge Jackson the Supreme Court nominee, especially when she won't answer any questions or ask her? I mean, she won't even tell them what her definition of a woman is. I mean, that's almost lunacy. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. You know, there's a there's a constitutional argument about can the vice president break a tie in matters relating to the nominating or um, confirming of Supreme Court justices. Um, I've seen it both ways. I don't know. I mean, I don't know who would decide whether uh, that's fair game or not. I will say this. I mean, how do I argue? Because I don't want to be, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a hypocrite, and I'll accept that. I'm a, I joke around a lot. I'm a socialist liberal or a liberal socialist or a communist uh, liberal or a, anyway, uh, excuse me, a, a libertarian socialist is what I meant to say. And that's basically to say that um, I, I can be a lot of different things depending on what the um, what situation I find myself in. But, but I want to be consistent here. I think intellectually and politically consistent. If I lecture to listeners about, you know, if they get you down, if they kick you in the growing and you go to your knees, they aren't going to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That was below the belt. They're going to kick you in the teeth. I mean, that's who you're dealing with. Kavanaugh was an evident example of that. Lindsey blew up. And, you know, if, if, if that's what you guys are willing to have power, I hope you never have power again. So will Lindsey forget that? Because Lindsey historically has said his role is to advise and consent. Well, I mean, the Democrat senator's role is to advise and consent. They changed the rules. I mean, they, they basically believed it was their job to stop a conservative justice from serving on the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, there is no other interpretation. I mean, how many Democrats have voted for Trump nominees? Trump put three on the U.S. Supreme Court. I may look that up during the next break. How many Democrats voted for a Trump nominee? So if the vice president can't break the tie, if there is a constitutional debate and there is an emergency hearing, and it's at the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, who has the majority of the U.S. Supreme Court? It's when, guys. I mean, that's what we've got to make our mind up. I mean, obviously, the, 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 the agenda of America First has to be intellectually consistent. It needs to have um, substance to its agenda. But, but it needs to prioritize winning, defeating the American 
political left. And I think what Joe is arguing, and I kind of support this, shame on any Republican that votes for Joe Biden's nominee. I don't care if she's qualified. Kavanaugh was qualified. Gorsuch was qualified. I mean, there's been a lot of qualified people that, that didn't gain the support of those who are supo or are to advise and consent. Um, don't vote for her. Force the court or force someone to decide whether or not the vice president, I mean, it, it goes, are we going to be Andy McCarthy and continue to desire to be invited to cocktail parties and do the virtuous and right thing? They've demonstrated there's not a lot of virtue there. There's not a lot of adherence to the Constitution there. I mean, it, it, Lindsay's right. I mean, it's the role of the Senate to advise and consent, to, to, to fetter whether the individual is qualified or not. Kavanaugh was qualified. No Democrats voted for him. I think Amy Coney Barrett may have got some Democrat support, if I'm not mistaken. I'll look that up during the break. But I, I'm with Joe. I mean, if you believe you're dealing with a political enemy, not a political opposition, but a political enemy, they perceive you to be the boogeyman, then treat them the same way. When they kick you in the growing, they kick you in the mouth. Kick them in the growing, and then kick them in the mouth. Turn around is fair play, especially in American politics. Back in a minute. In Federalist Paper number 69, it says, um, Alexander Hamilton actually said this in Federalist number 69, in the national government, if the Senate should be divided, no appointment could be made. I mean, it's an advise and consent role. It's not the, 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 the approving or not of legislation, the adopting or not of legislation. Um, and the, the, the advise and consent role in confirming nominees is excluded from the, uh, from the uh, office of the vice president, uh, I guess, Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Paper number 69. For, uh, I mean, he's a bright man. I mean, he was a big government guy, but he's a bright man. And, um, so, if and, it's a, so if it's a tie, the nominee is not approved. In the, in the national government, if the Senate should be divided, no appointment could be made. I mean, if the Senate votes 60-60, because Harris is not a member of the Senate. I mean, when I presided over the Senate, I was not a member of the Senate. Um, I don't know if there was things I couldn't vote on. I never asked that question. Is there something the Senate, if the Senate is tied, or there's some things the presiding officer cannot uh, be involved in? Well, Federalist Paper number 69 says that the, the, the vice president cannot break a tie. Now, in the case of Barrett, Amy Coney Barrett got no Democrat support, and Susan Collins voted no. She voted with the Democrats, and it was about abortion and um, her devout Catholic views. Remember, um, we can, we can, the dogma of your faith is in, uh, I mean, there's some oh, of those statements, yeah. the dogma of your faith is obvious. Um, Gorsuch got three Democrats. Now, I didn't know this. Manchin, Heidkamp, and Donnelly all voted in support of uh, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. Joe Manchin voted yes for Kavanaugh. So I stand corrected. I said there was no Democrat that supported. Now, none of this was in a 50-50 chamber. I mean, this was, you know, Manchin is playing politics. Manchin knows he's in a heavily Republican state, and the Republican, well, it would be Trump's appointee. I mean, if Trump's nominee in West Virginia is more red, uh, Trump red, than South Carolina is, that the I don't know if there's another state in, in, uh, in America that has more Trump supporters than West Virginia per capita. I mean, I would imagine some of the bigger states, sheer number of people, Texas, comes to mind. But as a percentage, West Virginia is probably as Trumpy a state as there is in America. So Manchin probably didn't want to risk not voting for Gorsuch or not voting for Kavanaugh 
and face of the ire of the West Virginia um, voter, excuse me, the West by God Virginia uh, <laughs> voter, but it's 50-50 today. And this is really what we're talking about. You know, when you kick in the groin, you kick, you kick in the mouth. Or do you say, well, I'm going to do the right thing this time. I'm going to do the, um, the Andy McCarthy thing. The Constitution says my job is to advise and consent. It's not my job to choose the Supreme Court justice. Um, did, did the Democrats do that with Kavanaugh? Did the Democrats do that with Amy Coney Barrett? Did the Democrats do that with Neil Gorsuch? I'll let you decide. Lindsey will be interesting because he's always been one that has said, advise and consent, and he'll generally go with well, Lindsay the nominee. Said pre- Lindsay will vote yes. I mean, she will get confirmed if by no other reason than Lindsay going along, but he's been consistent. I mean, he's always said, it's not my job to pick judges, only the role of advice and consent. Back in a minute. You know, when you think about it, we, we've kind of established a narrative this morning. Are we go, if we're going to fight the war, the culture war, the, the economic war, I mean, in other words, if uh, you got Ukraine and Russia, you got us and China, you got us and Russia, got a lot of geopolitical rivals and enemies, but, but we're having a great struggle within. I mean, America is in um, political flux. I mean, there, there, there's, a, um, there's a pulling apart of one political party. Um, and our geopolitical foes. They certainly know that. Sure. I mean, and they're you know, going to exploit that. But to I would advantage. ask you this, Rev. Let me ask you this, and I'll ask our listeners this. When I say the name Mitt Romney, do you hear friend or foe? I mean, when I say AOC, it's automatic. I mean, right. there's no question Obviously. about it. I mean, she's a foe. I mean, if you say, I don't mean individually and personally. I mean, I don't wish you to yield will on AOC. I certainly don't. Um, she may or may not wish you to yield will on me. Uh, sometimes <laughs> I wonder, but, but I don't. I mean, I, that's the condition of my debate. I just don't wish any ill will on anybody. Uh, I hope she has a wonderful life. I hope she doesn't serve in Congress much longer, but I hope she says a, a spectacular and wonderful existence from here. What's the, the sign I line. saw? Make, make AOC bartend again. Yeah, well, that, she, I'm sure she was really good at it. And I think my buddy from Pamplico said she's easy on the eyes. Uh, kind of hot, I think is what he said. She's kind of hot. Um, she is a bit photogenic, uh, shall I say. A little bit wild-eyed, but photogenic none, <laughs> nonetheless. Um, she's the kind of girl. Anyway, I'll, I'll leave that alone. I don't want to go. Yeah. Yeah. We FCC and censorship and, uh, all these other good things. I'll have to write a letter of apology yeah. if I were to go much further good down plan. that road. Um, to somebody uh, crazy woman. I'll just leave it there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> back crap crazy is what we uh, like to refer to it as, but, but she is, she deserves the respect as a member of Congress. I mean, she does. Somebody elected her, just somebody elected Tom Rice, and somebody elected Jim Clyburn, and somebody elected uh, Jim Jordan. I mean, all these guys and ladies are elected from a district, so that's who the district chose to um, chose as their representative. But, but here's the issue. Is Mitt Romney a friend or foe? And I'm not talking about personally as AOC. I'm not talking about personally, but ideolo- ideologically, um, uh, politically speaking, do, do, do you consider Mitt Romney on your team or not? He's a Republican, you're a Republican, but is he on your team or not? I'm arguing he's not. I say not. I mean, I think that the, the, the fewer Mitt Romneys we have, uh, the better the Republicans are and the more potential there is to enact some sort of change. But we've had this debate this morning about the, the, uh, the Andy McCarthy way. And you know I hold Andy McCarthy in high regard. I mean, I do. I think he's one of the um, preeminent conservative uh, legal minds in America. But, but he's also a guy who's been um, around a long time. He's established himself as a, a respected voice of modern intellectual conservatism, and he's not going to embarrass the cause because if he embarrasses the cause, he's not invited 
to the cocktail parties and supper clubs and you know the luncheons and events that he likes to be or i would imagine maybe he doesn't maybe he's a hermit i don't know might be an introvert and stays home all the time but but the likes of andy mccarthy or you've got the pr- people at the babylon b who when usa today declares someone woman of the year who's not really a woman the babylon b in complete and total satire say uh, our man of the year is rachel uh, levin because rachel is known as i mean he's not rachel i mean he's not even he may be taking some sort of he's a drag queen okay <laughs> i mean i don't think he's even taking estrogen supplements or something to uh, tamp down the testosterone uh he's a woman excuse me he's a man who enjoys dressing up like a woman and he's woman of the year in usa today fashion but that, that's that's the enemy i mean that's the mortal enemy i'm talking about i mean the culture war that rages in America, we got a war on um, energy, and and I'm talking about green energy or fossil fuels. We got a war about the economy. Those who believe in modern monetary theories, and we can spend until we just can't spend any longer. There are no consequences or repercussions. So yeah, I mean, we got these geopolitical adversaries, China, Russia, come to mind, but we also have this internal squabble that we're trying to hash out and come to grips with. And when I look at the Ukrainian-Russian um, situation, for me, I mean. The, the Ukraine situation is pretty simple. Russia is our declared enemy. I mean, they are a geopolitical adversary in political speak, but they are our mortal and moral enemy. They are our rival. Um, Ukraine didn't invade Russia. Russia invaded Ukraine. So my rival invaded a neighboring nation. Um, I'm on Ukraine's side. Now, I don't know what that means. I have no idea the extent of which I'm willing to be on Ukraine's side. Um, there are a lot of opinions out there. Zelensky's a, a hero and he's Lincoln-esque. I mean, I heard someone the other day, uh, might have been Ben Sass, say that he reminded them of uh, him of Abraham Lincoln and what Lincoln did in those um, in those turbulent moments of the Civil War. Um, is he? I mean, what do we know about Zelensky other than he stood and fought? I mean, we know that. That's heroic. Right. I mean, that's to be honored. But but are we going to sell our soul to Ukraine because Zelensky chose to stand and fight? And some of the voices that aren't buying into this are Tucker Carlson and and Candace Owens. I mean, they've been very outspoken in their hesitancy to go down this road of um of everything being Russia propaganda. You know, from from the American political world. Everything that Russia says or has ever said is propaganda. Now, forget that, you know, Washington has this cozy relationship with the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Twitter, Facebook. Um, In other words, we propagandize probably about as much as Russia does, but we do it in the name or under the guise of liberty and freedom and democracy. Um, And that's kind of what we're deciding as we speak. There's a culture war, that there's an economic war, there's a political war that will choose the fate and future of our country moving forward, and it's within. I mean, forget Ukraine and Russia for a second. This is a dramatic battle within. Now, now I want to go back to Ukraine. Ukraine is not our geopolitical adversary. Russia is. Ukraine didn't invade Russia. Russia invaded Ukraine. Therefore, in, in Pamplicoism, I'm, I'm on Ukraine's team. I mean, I'm a fan of the Ukrainians. But, the, but the underdog? But, but I certainly don't buy that they are. Kaufman said yesterday they were on their way to Western values. I don't know about that. Um, I think Ukraine is still a very corrupt government. I think corrupt. I mean, you look at what, I mean, even look at what Zelensky has done. 
I mean, he's basically, um, he's he's rolled all of the media outlets into one. So there's a state-run media, and he says he has to do this. And, and Lincoln did some pretty extreme things during the Civil War. There may be uh, the reason they're comparing him to uh, the other. He has, um, I mean, we've seen where his physicians associated with his government say that the Russian soldiers are cockroaches and they're going to be castrated if caught. I mean, that's not speaking very much of Western values and Western culture, Geneva Convention, war crimes, and all these other sorts of things. Well, I mean, some voices in conservative circles, nobody on the left is doing this. It's kind of interesting to me. You know, the, the, the American political right today are the ones that question the motivation of the American military. I mean, that's bizarre to me. When did this happen? It does seem kind it, of... It, uh, it is unbelievably bizarre. Things have changed. That the American political left has very little questions of the American military-industrial complex uh, because we are, we're, we're dealing with the Russians. You know, we're dealing with the Chinese. We're, um, uh, we're, we're standing tall. Now, if it was Trump, it'd be a different animal, but it's a Democrat president. It's a Democrat Congress, and, uh, and the Democrats are making the decisions, and Democrats defend Democrats in a way that Republicans don't defend the Republicans. But Candace Owens and Tucker Carlson, um, Tucker's much more relevant, but Candace Owens is a big deal in conservative circles. Um, my daughter would care more what Candace Owens said than what Tucker Carlson said. Now, both my boys would care what either said, but they'd give priority to Tucker. I mean, if Tucker said this and Candace said that, they'd give Tucker a little more benefit of the doubt than they would Candace. My daughter would be different. I mean, she sends me a lot of things that Candace Owens tweets. I mean, it encourages me because she's trying to be involved. She's trying to be informed. Um, so the New York Times reached out to um, Candace Owens, and they sent her an email. And she redacted the name of the employee at the New York Times, but that's the only thing she redacted. And she posted the email. And, um, and it says, hi there, I'm writing from the New York Times. We're working on a story about Russia messaging that includes some of your comments. We note that you advanced the idea that Ukraine was a corrupt country with unmatched, excuse me, which matched comments we've seen about Russia's state media. I'm wondering if you have any context or further comment to add about this comparison. We're finalizing the story today. Thanks. Well, the, the story's already done. I mean, there's no, they wanted to say they reached out to Candace Owens for comment. They probably wouldn't include a comment, even if she gave one, but they're insinuating that you are um, perpetuating Russian propaganda, mm -hmm. to which Candace Owens responded. Her, her reply is so great. She responded by saying, I am very confused by this email. I learned about the idea that Ukraine was a corrupt country from the New York Times. You guys have covered the corruption of Ukraine extensively for years. As just one example, here is a piece from the New York Times editorial board entitled Ukraine's Unyielding Corruption. I educated myself about both the neo-Nazi problem in Ukraine and the unyielding corruption by reading your newspaper, not Russian state media, is there something specific I said that was different from what you guys have written in the past? Thank you, Candace Owens. She continued, for more good measure, uh, here are more articles, and she included more articles about Russia propaganda. Um, that's where we are. I mean, that's what we're dealing with. And, and the point I'm trying to make is if we are going, I don't want to say hijack a political party, 
If we're going to take over a political party, in other words, if the voters of this political party, this national conservative movement within the Republican Party, are going to pay more attention to Tucker Carlson than George Will, more attention to Candace Owens than Annie McCarthy, we're going to have to be very aggressive. Candace Owens appears to be more than willing to be aggressive in confronting the liberal media. Now, now McCarthy would probably say something to the effect of, well, it wasn't as it sounded. You know, I mean, the New York Times could potentially get me kicked off these lists. And, and that's the, I mean, that, that's where we are in, in this political movement, in this political battle. Um, can we remain anti-establishment? I'll go back to the airplane hangar. The only reason I went to the Trump event, I went for two reasons. I went because my daughter wanted to go, and I went because I wanted to kind of take the temperature of the room of 75 people behind the scenes. I am well aware of the 10,000, 12,000 people in that airfield. I mean, I understand them unmistakably. They understand me. I understand them. We, we are kindred spirits. I was one of the few in that relatable world of 12,000 that was allowed to go in the room of 75 uh, kind of the movers and shakers of the Republican Party. And as I perused the room and I took account, kind of a, an inventory of who's in the room, it appeared to me that Trump loses that room probably 60-40. I mean, it may have been 55-45, but he loses that room. And he loses the room not whether they'll vote for him or Joe Biden. They'll vote for Trump over Biden. Uh, most will. He wins that 90-10. Would they vote for Mitt Romney over Donald Trump? Romney wins that room probably 60-40, maybe even 70-30. If, if Trump and DeSantis run, half that room doesn't vote in the Republican primary. They shift over and may vote in the Democrat primary. So you've got this element within. And here's our problem, Rev. And here's the quandary. And there's only one answer. And I know the answer. The only reason those 75 people were in the room, excluding me and a couple of others, if they made, they've made enormous financial contributions in the name of Republican politics, not in the name of Trump, not in the name of America first, because the majority of these people probably supported John Kasich or Marco Rubio or Chris Christie or, or more likely Jeb Bush. Bush probably wins that room 60 percent, 60 Trump, I mean, excuse me, 60 Bush. 15 Rubio, 10 Christie. Trump may get 2 or 3% in a Republican primary. But the reason the hangar had heat, food, and beer, and wine, and liquor was because those people have contributed money to the Republican Party. So, so what's happening behind the scenes in that hangar and in hangars all over the country when Trump lands and they have these exclusive VIP pre-event events, that's where the fundraising happens. That's where the donations are solicited. Um, that's how you give back to somebody who gave. There was somebody in that room who gave the Republican Party $5 million. I mean, I said it over the air. Uh, there was some scuttlebutt. I think I know who it was. I'm not sure because there's not many people in that room that could give $5 million bucks. There's a lot of people in that room give 100000 I mean, the room's probably full of people that could give 100000 There's very few people in that room that could give $5 million, and they would never give it in the name of America First. They give it in the name of how do we stop this America first nonsense? How do we hijack this America first nonsense? How do we dilute this America first nonsense? So you've got two particular events. And here's my question. I know which crowd I'm more aligned with, and it's not the 75 in the room. Are there any political leaders or political leadership within the Republican Party that would feel more at home 
in that airfield of 12,000 than in that airplane hangar of 75. That's where we are. That's the fundamental issue uh, that challenges America first moving forward. The 75 people in that room probably influence Republican politics as much as the 12,000 people in that field. But the 12,000 people in that field, probably the majority don't have a lot of money to contribute and don't believe it's worth contributing X, Y, or Z to a political campaign or candidate. The, the, the only way this movement effectively changes the Republican Party is when Trump gets off of that plane, he doesn't go meet with 75 movers and shakers, but walks directly to the airfield and addresses the 12,000 people. But right now, he's got to do that tap dance because there's money. There's a lot of donors in that room, and politics, money's the mother's milk of American politics. So we've expressed this before, and I'll express it again. Here's the answer. You ready? How many of you are willing to give 20 bucks a year in the name of America first and demand it stays true and sincere and committed to the America first agenda, that, that it requires a Peter Thiel being in the room, a J.D. Vance being in the room, a Blake Masters being in the room, a Ron DeSantis being in the room. There's no way Jeb gets in that room. There's no way Chris Christie gets in that room. There's no way the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal get near that room. The only way to do that is to find the ability to raise funds that allow you to compete at the, the highest level. Why is J.D. Vance all of a sudden a threat in Ohio? Peter Thiel put $10 million in the bank. We don't like that. We wish that weren't the case. I wish money, I wish money was not the mother's milk of American politics. But today, as we see it, it's kind of like oil and energy. I mean, until we have a better idea and a better way, you play the hand you're dealt. So if 50 million of us gave 20 bucks a year in the name of America first. And I'm talking about the purest America first you could imagine. That's a billion dollars annually. If we had a billion dollars annually in the name of America first or save America, you know what Trump does? He gets off that airplane, walks on that stage and addresses the 12 or 15,000 people who gave 20 bucks each and collectively or cumulatively of a, a, a billion dollars and he doesn't have to stop off and, and, and have kind of a, um, excuse my French, I think we say this on the radio, you ready? Have an ass-kissing contest <laughs> where he kisses theirs and they kiss his, because that's all those things are. I mean, that's all they're there for. You know, you tell me how important I am, and I'll make sure I tell you how important you are. But that is a, a big part of American politics today. By the way, I'm in on, on that deal. Yeah, but if it 20 would, a year. Well, at least 75 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. 25 million felt they were forced. They'd probably rather vote for Jeb. They'd rather vote for Marco. They'd rather vote for Christie, and that's fine. But there's 50 million people out there who are dedicated to the America First movement, whether it's DeSantis, whether it's Hawley, whether it's Vance, whether it's Trump, doesn't matter. They believe we've got to fundamentally and effectively change the nature of which the Republican Party conducts its politics. But it takes money. It takes infrastructure. It takes voting registration. It takes voting awareness. It takes running campaigns. It takes candidate recruitment. I mean, there's a lot that goes into building a team like this, and it's expensive. And until we figure out another way to pay for it, Trump's got to have these pre-rally rallies with the 75, 50, 100 people that are most influential in that state who have no desire whatsoever to see this Republican Party placed in the hands of of the American working class. Take a break. Back in a minute. I'll conclude by saying this. If, if we are to be successful in this national conservative 
populist movement, it can't be about angling for power. I mean, it just can't. It, it can't be about that. It has to be about this genuine good faith disagreement that we have within the ranks of the Republican Party. Um, the, the Romneys of the world want the party to perform as it historically has. I mean, they, they would probably argue we've done a pretty good job of confronting liberal policies and, and dealing with certain issues and occasions which, uh, you know, conservatism carried the day and won out. Um, look at the court. You know, look at, look at the judges on the court. They are, by and large, I mean, the conservative judges are textualist or, or constructionist. I mean, they interpret the Constitution uh, as it was written, as it is written, um, in, in a very textualist sort of way. Um, but, but if we're going, I mean, you got one movement within the party that I think has run the party for a long time, run the ground, but run it for a long time. Um, you can't try to out angle them for power. And, and I guess that's the self servitude I'm talking about. I mean, I, I'll go on the record. I don't trust Ted Cruz any further than I can throw him as it relates to America first. I trust his intellect. I trust his judgment. I trust his understanding of the constitution. I think he's one of us, but when it comes to America first, I think he's angling for power. I think Ted Cruz is always angling for power. The one thing I like about Teal, and I think, Rev, you would agree to this, what does Peter Teal need that the Republican Party has? I mean, I would imagine he wants to be a, a person of power and influence. I mean, billionaires normally do kind of throw their weight around a bit. But when you look, I mean, is, do we think Peter Teal's running for office? Is he angling for a job that has better health care and benefits? <laughs> of course not. That's why I find him to be the most interesting example of who to lead this party. Now, now Larry said it, a couple of others, I think Carl may have said it one day. Um, you know what scares you about Teal? He can be anything he wants to be, any day he chooses to be. That, that's certainly to be considered, and we should be apprehensive of that. But if we're going to try to divert power away from the, uh, the customary centers of power in the Republican Party, we can't do it by angling for more power. There has to be this genuine good faith disagreement between America firsters and traditional intellectual conservatives and the America firsters got to convince, you know, the, the, the good traditional national review abiding, you know, um, weekly standard reading um, Republicans that your way has failed. It's not been able to keep up or combat liberal policies and the liberal direction the country is going in. Um, give us a shot. The, the, the issue is where do you find the funding? There, there's millions and millions and millions of people out there who are in love with this populist movement, in love with this America First movement. Are you willing to write a check? Are you willing to make a contribution? That's going to be the key. Let's go to the phone. Michael in Florence. Morning, Michael. Yeah, 20 bucks a year? Geez, you know, where do, where do I send the check? I'd like to be happy at 20 bucks a month. Um, you know, listening to you talk about the, the 12,000 people in the field versus the 75 in the room, and, and I've talked about this before, those 12,000 people, that's who Trump represents. Those 75 people in the room, they don't represent us. They represent their own interests, and that's the problem. We're supposed to have a representative government, the people who represent us, the working class people, and we haven't had that for years. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. And to that point, let us pose this hypothetical question, Reb. Let's say the 12,000 people in that field wanted a piece of policy adopted, a regulation passed, or, or regulation abolished. But the 75 or 80 people in that room were on the other side of that argument. 
who historically has won that debate in American politics? I mean, we know the answer. I mean, the people in that room carry the day. They win the argument. Um, corporate America, the elites, the establishment, the well-to-do, uh, the economic elites. I mean, there, there's a mi- political class, ruling class, that there's a million ways we've described those people, but we've not ever beat them. Now, now I'm conflicted. I mean, I'll level with you. I mean, I don't have enough money to, to give somebody $5 million or a million dollars or anything like that, but I'm somewhat, I mean, you, you joke around with me. I'm, I'm somewhat politically connected. I mean, I played the game, and I think I played it fairly well. Um, I would argue the reason that I'm no longer in politics was my unwillingness to play the game to the extreme degree of which they wanted a game to be played. I was not going to forsake my independence. I was not going to do certain things a certain way. Um, I've, I've hardly ever said this over the airways. Now's a good time. Um, I think I could have skated had I agreed to a few things that, that would have um, caused other people harder problems than they deserved. Um, but had I gone along and get along, I, I probably could have saved uh, my office and saved my career in politics, but I'm just not wired that way. And maybe, I mean, I, I don't know. Sometimes my wife thinks this. That's probably the the inner emotion that, that I'm captivated by and want to be a part of a team. Um, in other words, the man got me. Let's go get the man. Does that make any sense? I mean, we're all personal. I mean, you can't take personality out of any of this. I mean, you know, all of us hold personal grudges to some degree. We try to check them, and we try to measure and monitor and police ourselves and make sure we don't let those sorts of uh, feelings get the best of us. But we all have those grudges. We all have those sensibilities. We all have um, things that we believe weren't done uh, in your best interest. Or the way, you, In other words, you weren't treated fairly. Um, but that's water under the bridge. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the caller made a – we know that. We know that his army is in that field. But is it his army or is it a, a true, sincere belief in America first, this national conservatism or nationalistic conservatism that permeates and percolates within the party? Um, and doesn't, doesn't really what have to happen is that the voters – that are they line up a lot closer with Republican voters, but don't they have to put America first people in the office? And are they willing to basically primary uh, the uh, traditional Republicans out of office? That's exactly right. I mean, it's as clear as a veil. That's what has to happen. Um, Donald Trump has shown a willingness to get involved in Republican primaries. How many presidents historically, how many former presidents have ever got involved in, in primaries? I can tell you when it happens. When someone worked for someone, and there's a personal loyalty there. I mean, if they, um, if someone who worked in the Bush White House is running for office, the Bushes would probably support that person. That's understandable. I mean, there's some degree of loyalty I respect in that manner. But but Trump has been a guy who's not afraid. Now, now a lot of this is vindictive. There, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he's a vindictive guy. He's a hard-charging business guy. Uh, he keeps score. You get him. I'm going to figure out a way to get you somewhere down down the road. That's the nature of his life and his world. But, but I think the caller... I mean, it, it, he says something that all of us know. But the one unknown is, can that group of people in that airfield? I mean, there's no doubt 12,000 beat 75 every day. You know that, I know that. I mean, if everybody in that room voted against Trump and everybody in that airfield votes for Trump, he wins 12,000 to 75. But it's not that simple. The math doesn't break down that simplistically, that there are a lot of other variables. And the 75 people in that room are probably more conniving, probably on average wealthier. I mean, I don't think that's a, uh, I mean, I think everybody listening to me would say, well, of course they're wealthier. 
mean, there's no doubt about it. So the, the we believe the um the uh the, the median income of the people in that field matched the median income of the people in that room. Of course, nobody believed that. We're not that gullible nor naive. But how do we combat that political influence? The political world has been established where certain things matter more than certain other things. And, and I said it earlier, politics has always been a breeding ground for opportunism. So if someone in that room, whether they like or don't like the America First movement, they're trying to figure out a way to distort it, to manipulate it, to commandeer it, to take control over it and make it their own. They did it with the Tea Party. I mean, they really did. The Tea Party was as noble a movement within the Republican Party as there's ever been. I mean, the, the Christian conservative movement was noble. The Tea Party movement was noble. But, but neither were until, until they, they become corrupt, until they become in bed with the establishment. So the establishment has a good record of taking control of some of these. Uh, remember what the, um, the SCGOP chairman said on our radio show. Uh, Drew McKissick said over our airwaves that we've always had these brush fires. We've always had um, the, the, these revolutions within. I don't think we've ever had anything like this. I mean, I, you know, I don't remember very well the the Christian coalition. David Beasley benefited enormously from that. Uh, David was my statewide chairman. David and I had conversations about the effectiveness of that movement within the Republican Party. It was very spiritual. It was very um, about the Bible and, you know, Christian worldviews, Judeo-Christian worldviews and a biblical worldview. Um, it was kind of a, a cultural or secular, the secularization of America. Uh, was on the march, and somebody's got to stop it. And it needs to happen right here in South Carolina. And it was a fairly effective political movement. And then along comes the Tea Party. And the Tea Party was born after the events of 9-11. Um, excuse me, the events of 2008, you know, when the banks were bailed out. I had a front row seat to that. Nikki Haley's polling at about 9 or 10%. And she's we're concerned she's going to drop out of the governor's race down to the lieutenant governor's race. And my contest gets a lot more hotly contested. But Sarah Palin shows up at the state house at probably, here I go with the country saying, you ready? At the high water mark <laughs> of that movement, the Tea Party movement, Palin endorses Nikki Haley, and the rest, as we say, is history. I mean, I had a front row seat of that because Nikki's running at the same time I'm running. But I don't know that I've ever, I mean, I, so, so I saw the, the, the Tea Party movement up close and personal. It is nothing like what I'm seeing now. It's nothing like what's happening now. And those 75 people in that room are well aware of how, how powerful that energy is. Now, now, what are they trying to do, Rev? I think they've convinced themselves now we can't squelch it. We, we can't kill it. We can't, you know, we, we can't make it go away. So let's take control of it. And I think the conversation has shifted from let's stop it from happening to let's control how it happens. And what it affects. Let's go to the phone, and then we'll take our break. Is John in Darlington? Hey, John. Hey, uh, I had a question concerning the Trump rally. Uh, I went there. Uh, when I got there, there was looked like all the seats were taken up in the general audience, but there was plenty of seats in the bleachers. And my question is, uh, how much do you have to pay to get the seats in the bleachers? And do you think there was not enough shares there for that rally? And I'll take it off the air. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Um, you had the GOP with opportunities. You had the Russell Fry campaign with opportunities. You had the Donald Trump Save America Super PAC with opportunities. And some of those bleachers were reserved for those who give X number of dollars, you get two seats. X number of dollars, you get four seats. 
Um, next thing you know, you're drinking a, a fine wine and eating caviar if you're willing to give such and such. I'll let you in a little secret. You ready? There was even a, in, in the room I was in with 75 people or so, there was a more exclusive room. I mean, in, in the room I'm in, there, there are blue tags and there are red tags. So there's a, there, there's a, if, if you only give a little more, you know what I mean? That there's always another degree of grifting <laughs> or opportunism in American politics. But at the caller's point, I don't know who laid that out. I just know that the GOP was trying to raise money off the event. Russell Fry's campaign was obviously trying to raise money off events because that's why Trump was here to endorse Russell Fry and endorse Katie Arrington. But um, some of those seats were reserved. And um, th- there were, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, it was as cheap as $99 and as expensive as $10,000 per seat. Uh, now, what you get for 99 that you don't get for ten grand, I don't have any idea. Um, the, the, re- the only reason that I was allowed to go into the airplane hangar is I was asked to be a member of the honorary host committee. And, um, and that allowed us and another guest to go behind the scenes a bit but guess what you could even go behind the scenes behind the scenes if you brought your checkbook with you take a break back in a minute (laughs) see and i can't speak for women but i I just honestly believe that that's what women want i don't think women i don't say a turned on that's a lousy way to say it i don't think women find men who aren't masculine very attractive now, now, masculinity can be defined in a lot of different ways. The left's trying to define it as aggression and, and dominance. I don't buy that for a second. I think manliness and masculinity means I'm going to take care of things. When things come up that need to be taken care of, I'm going to take care of them. I mean, that's my interpretation. And I just got to believe, I don't want to speak for women. I can't speak for women. But, but I think women desire a man to take care of things when things need to be taken care of, no matter what it is. And that would be the Volcker rule. I mean, Carl Volcker felt the only way to combat inflation was to raise interest rates as aggressively as he did. There's a lot of case study that shows the caller is exactly right. The, the intent is, and it's really twofold, Rev, here. You're in a dilemma. Here, here's the options. Don't raise inflation and allow the dollar to be devalued. Excuse me, don't raise interest rates and destroy the dollar. Raise interest rates and destroy the economy. There are no good options when you're $30 trillion dollars. Uh, in debt. There will be no good options when you continue to spend a trillion dollars you don't have. But I think fundamentally the caller makes a very valid point that, that you know, the, the correlation of raising interest rates and declining inflation is muddled at best. I mean, there, there's some economic theorists out there and economists out there that say, no, it's essential that we do this. I think the data is far more confusing than that. Whoa, what y'all did to us got to be more specific please call in and tell us what y'all did to us um i have been a supporter for paying college athletes uh the predominance is black i mean i've been i've been a big supporter of you know the the college athlete i've said this uh, somewhat provocatively but somewhat uh sincerely the the ncaa was the last plantation owner in america i mean that that can be taken very provocatively but i think it's i think it illustrates the point i'm trying to make the, the, the college athlete, now the professional athlete, African-Americans, have been very well compensated. It's hard to argue that professional athletes, African-American or white, are not highly compensated, fairly compensated. Most of us would say they make too much damn money to play a game they're real good at. But college is a different story. And I do believe that African-Americans, disproportionately because they are uh, a larger share of the athletes in college, yeah, 
I mean, there's no question about it. Now, does Nick Saban believe he's taking advantage? Does Steve Spurrier believe he's taking advantage? Does Dabo Sweeney believe he's taking advantage? They believe they love those kids. They're caring for those kids. They're providing an educational opportunity for those kids. But they're getting wealthy, and the kid is not. And we've got to address that. And that's what NIL and some of this transfer portal issue in college athletics is doing. Hey, we're talking about grifting and self-serving and self-dealing. You know why I loved Limbaugh? He was not one of those. I mean, he just didn't get much involved in that. I mean, obviously he had his sponsors and his relationships, but you didn't hear Limbaugh hawking something every break and promoting something every, whether it was a book or some painkiller or some uh, magical potion that you rub on top of your head and you're smarter than everybody else. I mean, Limbaugh was always a more serious guy than that. We'll talk tomorrow.